This episode of the Forge Podcast is brought to you by the generous donations of Thea Fatel, Edward Hart, Jamal Lobb, David Morris, and Brady Turner, along with all of our other amazing Patreon supporters. If you would like to become part of the Forge community, you can learn more at patreon.com forward slash Forge Genesis. Thank you. Hello, Demination, and welcome to The Forge, a Genesis RPG podcast covering everything that you need to know about the latest and greatest from Fantasy Flight Games, Genesis Foundry, and the Genesis role-playing game. Now, tonight we have an exciting and monstrously daunting episode, if what we've got planned anyway is going to come to fruition, um, as uh, we're going to forego almost all of our normal segments to make room for a blazingly hot and super lengthy deep dive review into the Expanded Player's Guide. But worry not, we will be back with our die casting, Breaking the Mould and Under the Hammer segments next episode, so don't panic too much. But let's be honest, we didn't think you'd really mind that much, as uh, you know, we're going to devote all of our time to diving into this amazing book. And to assist me in this deep, deep dive is my swimming partner and belly flop champion, GM Chris. Chris, how are you going? Got my Speedo, <laughs> got my nose plugs, but they're just for you, Huli. Just for you. And I'm not getting waxed. Not again. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't hear you objecting last time, but that's another topic for, uh, for another time. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, but before we get too wet and wild this uh, wacky episode, we are going to open the pool a little bit wider, maybe for some adult swim. And we're going to mm. welcome back to the show two very important guests who will be joining us for this free swim. And later, if we're lucky, mm-hmm. some, some time in the hot tub. Mm. Uh, Mr. <laughs> Sam Gregor Stewart and Mr. Keith Kappel. Gentlemen, welcome back to the show. Hey, guys. It's good to see you. It go well. Good to talk to you all. <laughs> Thanks for having me on once again. Pleasure to be here. Mm, it's been a long time, Keith. It's been like you were in our Since first episode. episode. One, I, I know. So a bit of a milestone for us because um, it's episode 13 for those people wow. who uh, were watching and uh, realized that um, something happened with the soundboard, but that's another side issue altogether. We fixed the problem, <laughs> so it's all good. So, no, yeah. it's very, it's very, it's very fitting for the thirteenth episode. We set up to record this. What guys? What was it? Five days ago? Four yeah. days ago? Yep. Uh, yep. Last Wednesday. Yeah. Last Wednesday. And and then Uli's soundboard just decided to just flip the bird to all of us. And so, yeah, it's just fitting. Yeah. Very fitting. Indeed. Indeed. It was a good hang. It's all right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we have a very intriguing discussion that I greatly want to get into. But before, um, you know, before we do, uh, perhaps that um, we should have some quick announcements, Chris. What do you say? Sounds like a plan. So let's very quickly toss some fuel into stoking the fire. Stoking the fire. 
And welcome to Stoking the Fire, a segment dedicated to letting you know all there is to know about the key announcements and releases from the Genesis Foundry and the Genesis Roleplay game. But before we get into that, Chris, would you like to tell us about our D20 Radio podcast of the week? Uh, certainly. Well, if you guys are a fan of uh, diverse RPGs like I am, and you are longing for a cast that blends great RPG discussion and actual play, look no further than the Story Told podcast. Uh, one of the crew's latest obsessions is Exalted, and their most recent episode 44 welcomes writer and developer Vera Vartanian to talk about the great houses of the realm for Exalted 3rd Edition. A really good discussion goes through her longtime enthusiasm for Exalted and her gaming insight as one of the writers for What Fire Has Wrought. Uh, really fun. Go give it a listen. And you guys can find that and more amazing gaming and geekery podcasts over at d20radio.com. And while you're surfing the web, be sure to swing by the Foundry for a few cool new releases that have dropped in the last two weeks. First up is an interesting offering from Roy Altman, who is also known as Narco, um, or maybe that's the other way around. I (laughs) I never get that right. Um, Where he has released the Genesis Adversary card template. Now, this PDF is a professionally designed uh, adversary card template designed to work as an editable file entirely in Adobe Acrobat Reader so that you can basically create custom, beautiful-looking adversary cards with nothing more than free software, which is fantastic. A uh, very cool product, and at only a cost of $3.99, well worth it. Go and check it out. Not bad. Not bad at all. And next up is a fascinating entry from uh, Guillaume Tardif, uh, the Skills Guide, a skills supplement for Genesis. Um, Very cool product designed to expand the options for skills. It includes a lot of new options to add narrative effects to skill checks, uh, new types of checks, and a new optional sub-skill system that adds 50 unique ways, new unique ways of using skills. Mm. Uh, perhaps most cool um, is a set of really good suggestions on how to spend dice pool symbols for every single skill. If, you, if you're in that situation where you've got some unusual narrative effects on the dice, you're not quite sure how to spend that advantage or that threat, mm. and it's a bit of an unusual skill, uh, this is a great resource. You can pull it up, and Guillaume has some phenomenal suggestions for every single skill out there. Mm. Um, the supplement also introduces new rules options for existing skills. Skills, uh, such as enchanting um, and starvation mechanics, mm. uh, as well as guidelines on altering skills uh, to set up unique combat, knowledge, and magic skills for your own setting. It is a beast of a document, massively huge, and it is $9.95. But very strong offering. Again, well done, Guillaume. Well mm. done. Absolutely. It's fantastic. And then lastly, we have a new offering from author SF Rattan in the form of the Game Master's Eclectic Toolkit. Uh, It's a bit of a tongue twister there. Uh, This 35-page book of wonderment contains various house rules that have worked at his gaming table over the years. And to be honest, it really does show. Uh, well thought out and thorough rules for things like methods to quickly create adversaries, guidelines for awarding XP, using maps and miniatures in your games, NPC morale, which is a fantastic one that I'll be certainly using, uh, random character generation, uh, skill challenges, which is cool, uh, talent design and simple methods for fleshing out careers with talents. It's an amazing read, and for only $4.99, it's a great snapshot of a proficient GM's experiences 
in running games in Genesis. And that's what we really strive to achieve in this podcast. Uh, so, um, yeah, it's, it's amazing. So definitely go and check that out. And you can find these titles and so much more on the Genesis Foundry by heading to drivethroughrpg.com and searching Genesis Foundry. But now we have another announcement which we would be remiss in not discussing. As we mentioned briefly at the start of our last episode, something we added as uh, you know, as the news dropped shortly after our recording, that we were sad to learn of the news that Fantasy Flight Games and their parent company Asmodi had recently engaged in a round of layoffs. Specifically, it has been confirmed that the studio will be shuttering Fantasy Flight Interactive, their digital game studio, but also the RPG development team within FFG has also been released. Sam, would you like to say a few words in relation to this? I know that you uh, you really wanted to take this opportunity to uh, to let the fans know a little bit about what um, you know what has happened in in your circumstance. That is uh, unfortunately true. Um, mm. Yes, I'm no longer a uh, employee of Fantasy Flight Games. Um, mm. And I mean, obviously, wish, um, I wish them all the best in the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, yeah, myself and my team are uh, now um, do, looking for new opportunities. Mm. And one that you announced recently, which was <laughs> um, a, a bit of a surprise to everybody, but very, very welcome. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're looking at doing a bunch of different stuff. But <laughs> as a side project... Um, one of the things we'd like to do is see if we can offer some of our um, expertise with the uh, Genesis system to people who want to design and develop uh, Forge or Foundry. Sorry, guys. <laughs> 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 offer uh, Foundry products. So you can uh, reach out to us and for a, a small fee, we can offer um, proofreading, um, rules development advice, editing, whatever is going to help you get your uh, get your product in into the best possible spot and you can reach us at team role-playing games all one word at gmail.com very cool and the the response to that has been amazingly positive um then i think you're about to be inundated just very quietly uh if you haven't <laughs> done so already um so uh, so yeah so that that's great that's going to be an amazing service for the community um as well as you know obviously doing whatever it is that uh, you decide to do in the future um, I personally, um, and I think I can speak for Chris as well, that uh, we would like to thank you for all the work that uh, you did while you were at FFG um, and uh, for obviously the uh, continuing support that you're providing to the community. It's um, really appreciated. So thank you. Yeah, hey, it's our pleasure. And uh, hopefully we'll get a chance to uh, add some of our own uh own content onto the uh, Foundry in the future as well. Um, we'll have to have you on as a guest again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when I've actually uh, when I've actually created something. <laughs> Absolutely. I imagine Huck will probably beat me to it if I'm not surprised. <laughs> He's a bit of a machine. <laughs> He's got um, some great... Sam, uh, uh, I need to thank you, of course, for uh, helping me start my career in this business and mm. give me like seven years of work over like 20 products I think I've worked on in FFG under you and Katrina and Andy and Max oh, and the Tims, all three of the Tims and uh, it's been uh, Alexis you. as well. Uh, yeah, speaking, yeah. Of, speaking of machines, <laughs> you know, yeah. you've uh, you've always been willing to dive on something um, and uh, 
turn it around and honestly it's been uh it's been great working with you i mean i hope it, this is not the last time we get to work together too i'm uh i'm it's nice it's comforting for me to know that if in three or four months i'm like oh man i miss sam yelling at me telling me how wrong i am i can just <laughs> hire you guys now <laughs> to look at whatever my foundry thing i was saying <laughs> I mean, at that point, uh, aren't you yelling at us? Oh, and, fair. Uh, That's us- true. <laughs> yeah. I'll be paying. I'll be cutting the check. So, uh, that, yeah, that's, that's finally, also, uh, you, you finally are the one who gets to, uh, <laughs> but, but the thing thank- is on the other foot now, <laughs> <laughs> but Sam, truly thank you for all the opportunities and second chances mm. and whatever else over the years. I appreciate it. Mm. It was my pleasure, but you earned it. Thank you. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's the Chicago attitude. <laughs> Indeed. Like, listen, Huli is being very, very kind and, and very nice. And matter of fact, and you are as normal being nothing but a gentleman. I'm, I'm just going to take a very brief moment to get a little emotional. And I'm going to say that I, this is, this sucks. <laughs> and I'm, 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 I speak for I know all of our listeners uh, in saying that this sucks and we love you guys so much. You, the Tims, Andy, Kat, Lex, I mean, and, and of course the freelancers, Keith, obviously, you guys have done nothing but support this show so wholeheartedly, um, as well as my other show, Order 66, for so long. Uh, you guys are amazing people and this sucks. And I am left with nothing but gratitude and love for all of you guys and you did something that and i'm not quite i'm, I'm genuinely not exaggerating and this is maybe maybe a little I, I don't know maybe a little weird to even say and so super nerdy but it changed my life Aww. so th- that is that is the impact that you and the others all, and, and and keith is you as you as well that is the impact you have had on myself and i know I, for many of our listeners so mm. thank you oh thanks man i mean it has genuinely been a pleasure to have been able to interact with the whole community and get to know you guys and visit you down in Texas and all that. And I mean, the, the, uh, the comfort that I know is that, uh, now this is a community and we're all part of it. So, uh, (laughs) it's not like anyone's going anywhere. Ain't that the truth. (laughs) And, and okay. In regards to that, (laughs) You know, we are obviously here to talk about the expanded player guide, uh, expanded players guide, and I think it's time maybe we we transition to some good news, um, because you two are going to help me with that right now. Yes, sir. It is time, listeners. Um, we we announced a contest um, before the end of last year. We wanted to get as many questions as we could for tonight's episode, so we had a wonderful listener donate to us a copy of the Expanded Player's Guide and the dungeon uh, and the GM screen uh, for Genesis. Um, and we decided that what we would do with that is give it to one of you listeners. And mm. so everyone who submitted a question for tonight's episode, whether that question actually made it on or not, because not everyone's <laughs> did, um, even still, we put your name in the drawing for this, and we are going to do the drawing right now. And Sam and Keith, we have an interesting way that we're going to go about doing it. <laughs> I, yes, have, I have an Excel spreadsheet in front of me with everyone's name written out um, with a number associated to it. And I'm going to have Sam and Keith each roll a D10. And based on the percentile rolled, um, and if it's 85 or higher, we'll have to do a re-roll. 
Um, <laughs> um, well, one of our listeners is going to win this prize right now on the air. So, do you gentlemen have your D10s ready? I do. I do. All right. Well, uh, Sam, why don't you go ahead and give us the 10s? All right. Sam's the big spoon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. All right. 40. 40. One. And Keith? One. 41. 41. That is Toby Wheatley, Ooh. who submitted his questions to us on Facebook. Um, so, Toby, if you are listening, uh, congratulations. You have just won a free copy of the Expanded Player's Guide um, and the GM's screen. Um, so we will reach out to you on Facebook, or you can reach out to us first <laughs> through messaging. Uh, we'd love to get your address, and we will get that shipped to you anywhere in the on the planet mm. post haste. Indeed. Well done, Toby. Congratulations. <laughs> I could be wrong, but I think that Toby's actually in the UK, which has distribution issues. So he might be very, very happy right now. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> Which would be very, good for very him. Cool. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, so yeah, congratulations, Toby. So, gentlemen, thank you very much for doing that. Um, and uh, again, well done, Toby. Uh, I think that it's time for us now to get into the topic at hand and wade into the furnace. The furnace. And welcome to the furnace, the segment where we take a deep dive into a topic concerning custom creations using the Genesis role playing game. Now tonight, that topic is going to be a massive one, as we will be diving deeply into the recently published Expanded Player's Guide uh, to not only review the book uh, and the glorious nuggets of Amazing Therein, but also to pepper some quite knowledgeable people with our and your questions about the EPG. And to that end, we are, again, proud to welcome back to the show two of the principal designers for the Expanded Player's Guide. Mr. Sam Gregor-Stewart and Mr. Keith Kappel. Gentlemen, once again, welcome to the show. Thank you. Of course. Happy to be um, here. We are going to do our best, uh, Gamer Nation, to cover the entirety of this epic tome tonight. We're going to talk about its production, its design, and what it brings to our games. And to that end, we have prepared a good deal of questions and discussion points and have collected even more from our listeners about various aspects of this book. But due to time constraints, as well, of course, as the simple inability of our guests to comment on anything related to the future, um, <laughs> some of these questions we've had to abridge or simply leave out of tonight's show. Mm. Um, and for those listeners whose questions fell into that category, we do apologize. Mm. However, it is important to note that uh, even if you um, submitted a question uh, and it didn't make the final cut for the show notes, uh, we still included your name in the drawing for a free copy of the EPG and the GM screen. But uh, without further ado, let's get into this amazing book. What do you say? Oh, Yes. Let's do this thing. Okay, let's talk about this. Let's get into the book itself. Uh, let's talk about because uh, we, we we have questions about the, about the development of the book and design choices. Let's 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 start simply, guys. Let's go, let's go for let's go with the overview, the hard sell, gentlemen. In a nutshell, what is this book about? If you had to explain to a gamer why they should buy it, what would you tell them? Well, I would say that uh, the expanded player's guide is the Genesis core rulebook, but more. It is, um, every uh, game line has the, if you're going to buy just one book to expand on Genesis, or to expand on that core book, you should buy X. And this is that book. It has additional, um, additional character options in the first section, as well as new settings. It has 
um, drastically expanded vehicle rules and uh, vehicle creation rules cre- created by Keith, and um, which takes a 12-page, 10-page section from the core book and fleshes it out a great deal. It has a new way to create adversaries and a new ranking system for a challenge rating system for adversaries. And finally, it expands things like your magic system, creates, gives you new adversaries to fight against, um, new magic talents, it's a little bit of everything sprinkled on top of the uh, Genesis core book. Yeah, in, in my view, it's like here's 112 pages that like if printing would have allowed probably could have been in the core book. You need to have this book. It's an essential companion. We just wanted to make sure we could hit that $40 price point. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. So what were the the design goals for the book? You know, what were the main things that you wanted to see developed, um, you know, for this book? And what sort of hard choices did did you have to make? Yeah, I mean, so honestly, um, Keith's comment about – you know, if the, if printing would have allowed um, some of the stuff that's in here was stuff that we had originally considered putting into the Genesis core, but we wanted the core book to be as accessible as possible. And that meant uh, honestly trying to make it its price point. Well, we were aim, really aiming for that $40 price point, um, which is lower than a 256-page book, usually is even. And that just meant that we couldn't fit everything we wanted to do into it. Mm. So that's where sort of it started, was there were things we knew we hadn't been able to include the first time that we wanted to, we still thought people would want to see. And then also, uh, when we talked about this plan with uh, people like Chris Gerber and Andrew Navarro, um Andrew uh, um, mentioned how uh, he remembered of some old uh, D and D products um, that were that you could create your own uh, create your own realms with, and said, you know, that kind of stuff. I find that fascinating. Maybe there's a way to include that in that as w- in there as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, things sort of moved on from there. Um, once we opened it up to, all right, so we have a basic idea of what this is going to be. It was not super hard to figure out all the stuff we wanted to put into it. Very cool. Now, as usual, this book is stunningly beautiful. Um, And we've already gushed plenty of times in the show about the general art design and and tone um, of graphic design for the Genesis line being as as clean as it is. But we had some excellent um, both existing and original art that made its way into this book. And considering its diverse themes and tones, uh, Mm. you guys had a lot of potentialities here. Um, did you have any favorite pieces of art that made it into the book? Keith, you want to take this one first? Or? Uh, sure. I mean, uh, my two favorite by far are uh, on page 18, the the Tim Huckleberry <laughs> uh, five-year anniversary picture. <laughs> yeah, uh, It's fantastic. So that's like right away an immediate number one. And then uh, the mech on page 67 coming out of the water. Yeah. Uh, uh, I really like that one too. That's also a five-year anniversary art piece, actually. Is it really? Yeah, um, you you have to get real close, um, so you it's it benefits be from a computer screen. It is Max. <laughs> um, he wanted a uh, Max Brook wanted a uh, to be in a mech, um, a mech pilot, and you know, super giant one too, not a, a tiny one, and. The uh, artist uh, kept making the mech bigger, and Max was like, no, that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> nice. 
So, nope, that is, uh, that's Max. Outstanding. So you picked uh, both the five-year-old pieces that are in here. That's great. Wow. And what about you, Sam? What did you like most um, in the book itself? Let's see. I've got uh, two. Um, I'll pick two as well, although really I kind of do like them all. <laughs> but um, I like uh, the... I like the intro piece actually. The uh, on page five, um, the man sketch- sketching in a study. Um, mm. I don't know. It it was a uh, it was a piece that just felt really perfect for uh, the introduction, conveying the like um, brainstorming idea, but it was also this uh, steampunk aesthetic and uh, just all that good stuff. Yeah. But then also for the post apocalypse setting, the art piece on page twenty eight. Um, at least in part because um, I spent a lovely couple of hours researching. Let me see. Those are, uh, um, I think, Caucasian mountain dogs. Jeez. <laughs> oh, Caucasian mountain dogs. That's it. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so I was. I just sent the artist um, like a dozen of the uh, most impressive um, photos of mountain dogs the internet could provide. And. <laughs> God, those those dogs are amazing. <laughs> My wife won't let us get one though. It's too big for the house. It's probably too big for the Twin Cities. <laughs> it's huge. <laughs> and it would take at least two cities to have enough room for Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. As soon as I found the picture of um, some woman, like, giving her mountain dog a hug and the dog is standing on time legs and it's higher than she is. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you, those are amazing pieces. I, I I laugh in the best way possible every time I see. I, I, I have to throw major props to the post-apocalyptic or the apocalyptic raider um, mm. on page, 30, <laughs> page 37. You know, just, you know, shiny and chrome. <laughs> <laughs> Spin the wheel, raggedy man. He's super excited to be there. Yeah, just... So that, that's it. That's it. He's just super excited to be there. He's so he's just so into it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just it's great. It's great. Um, so we actually a uh, listener, Jeremy Thompson, um, via Facebook, asked the following. He says, I see I can see the reflection of the guy in the background on page one oh three. Um, is the priest about to stab someone thinking he's a vampire is it another creature and the priest might just be horribly unprepared for the encounter? What, what is going on? <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? It could be all of those. <laughs> so, uh, interesting thing. The reason vampires can't see their reflection, like where that came from, is because old mirrors were made out of like silver and silver was like a uh, uh, vampire uh, weakness or something like that. Yeah. There's like there's a weird reason they that 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 became a thing that they can't see their reflection. Wow. Oh, I could see that. I didn't know that. Yeah. Huh. There you go. Cool. Hmm. I love the way that uh, Ultraviolet did it, uh, where they couldn't even use any sort of uh, telecommunications devices. That they oh. uh, that, that was cool. <laughs> I don't know if you guys have uh, if you got Ultraviolet over there in the states, but um, oh yeah, um, oh, yeah, yeah, it's absolutely amazing. It was but, a while um, back, but yeah, absolutely. Look, one thing that I, I do want to mention uh, about the the cover, which I thought was um, uh, quite interesting. I didn't realize this until somebody pointed it out, but the cover has all of the three settings on it. Was that intentional? Yeah. That was obviously intentional. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming. <laughs> oh yeah, it totally was. Yeah. We did this in conjunction with the GM screen um, with 
sort of the thought of like people keep asking for a G it, honestly the we didn't do a GM screen at first because um well one we traditionally have bundled them with some sort of adventure mm. and Genesis by its very nature doesn't lend itself to adventures unless they're tied to a certain setting. Mm. And so we were kind of like, well, there's that. And then what will we put on it? And everyone, and back when we made the core book and everyone's like, oh, I don't know, whatever. Um, and so <laughs> um, it never really went anywhere. And this time around we talked about it again. And uh, um, I think it was Andrew again, actually had the idea of, well, I mean, we could just make the GM screen, you know, there's no, we don't need to, uh, we don't need to bundle it with anything. Mm. And then, yeah, the, uh, um, that's where that rolled with. And then, uh, uh, Deborah Garcia, our art director worked with, uh, Anders, um, Anders Feiner on, uh, the cover for the screen, which we also figured we wanted to make sure the screen had bits from every, from every one of the example settings we did in the core book and the expanded player guide. Mm -hmm. And then um, we knew that we were going to take some of those set bits. They were on different layers and turn them into a cover for the expanded player guide. Mm -hmm. So we sort of got, uh, we got to uh, double dip a little bit, which uh, in the industry is always good. If you can pull it off. <laughs> Budgeting. Yay. <laughs> yep. It's very cool. the uh, the dark secret behind uh, behind so many decisions. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I think that my favourite um, image is the one that's uh, f at the start of Age of Myth um, mm. uh, with uh, with Sphinx. the Sphinx. Yeah, absolutely yeah. amazing. Absolutely amazing. Um, just a question in relation to the um, some of the artists. Who's the artist who does the uh, the sort of like the framework styling, which you know uh, the the one with the priest was mentioned before. Uh, is yeah. all of that done by the same artist? No, that's all. Um, it, he also did all the core book art. He his style has yep. uh, evolved a bit um, from the uh, from the core book to this book, but it's all uh, Marcin Basta. Right, he does a remarkable job. He, he does. He yeah. does. And he was uh, he was really excited to come back and uh, do uh, do this book as well. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think uh, he and Deborah and he, uh, Marcin had a good time putting this together. Mm. Uh, they've done a really, really good job. Now, we've also had a couple of other questions from uh, just general questions from listeners. Um, the first one is from Chris Denyer. Uh, from Facebook, and he asks, why was this book given the name Expanded Player's Guide when it seems to be more tailored to GMs with a little bit of player options? <laughs> sure, sure. Um, sorry, I'm jumping all over these, Keith. Um, you no, these take... are, this, is, this is you. This is your uh, big picture answer. So. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, yeah, no, so we, we talked about that. What? How did we want to uh, name this book? And... Um, we wanted a name. Um, one of the things that's been it's been nice is that uh, for um, for the non-setting source books, um, we well for this book really, but uh, we wanted it to be very much this is what it is. Um, the we wanted the name to sort of explain it, and so we were vacillating between the expanded players guide and the expanded game masters guide or like maybe the expanded um, creator's guide or something like that. But the problem was that um, what it really was, was the expanded guide for players, game masters and content creators. Hmm. And that's just too long to put at the bottom <laughs> of the book. 
So, I mean, not to sound flippant, but that was actually uh, what we decided. And so it was like, well, if we have to pick one, mm. um, we'll pick player because every everyone's a player, and well, <laughs> including the game master. Yeah. You know, they they play in the game as much as anyone does. There's a, there's a decent amount of player content in there. I mean, and a lot of stuff that you could argue is um, for players as much as it is for game masters. Mm. Um, like so, we, yep, the vehicle section, the uh, the starting character options from the uh, individual uh, settings, um, obviously the magic section, um, that kind of stuff. So we figured it was the player player's guide was the best choice. Um, given that we couldn't come up with a name that uh, encompassed everything. And now, having said that, I'm sure that uh, like two or three people on the forums will throw out a much better name um, <laughs> with the benefit of hindsight. Genesis Essential Companion. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah. See, if you had been in the room, Keith. Uh... You know. <laughs> the Skype man. Yeah. <laughs> I'll just have you on my uh, just have you on my phone um, all the time. You can just throw <laughs> out uh, ideas. People will be like, "Who is that?" <laughs> but also, great idea. We're going with that. Yeah, yeah. and the phone wins. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, to, to that end, can I just say that I'm I'm sort of questioning it as well. But then, when you sort of explain it like that, it's uh, that everybody at the table is a player, and it certainly then telegraphs that message to anyone who's playing the game. That it is more about you know it's it's equal opportunity for everybody at the table. Yes, the GM has his role and or her role and responsibility, but ultimately there's a lot more sort of like buy-in from everybody at the table more so than than other systems, just because of the nature of of the narrative dice. So um, I think that it was a, an apt thing. So I'm all supportive of it. I appreciate that. <clears throat> Okay, so as we as we get into the the actual content of the book, and we're still kind of at a high level talking about the generalized design and stuff, and, and the overall content, we had two additional questions. Um, the first also came in from Facebook from uh, Rob Geib, who said, "I'm curious about the lack of careers in the new settings. Uh, was that mentioned in a previous interview with the devs that I missed?" No, I mean the reason there aren't any new careers is that was one of the things we thought about putting in there, and. Um, Unfortunately, then we ran into the page count limits in this book because um, there's <laughs> always more stuff we want to do than we actually have a chance to. <laughs> Honestly, we figured that careers are the easiest thing for people to come with up with on their own. Um, I'm running a uh, game using Genesis, but set in um, the Age of Sigmar setting for Warhammer right now. <laughs> and for that game, I actually told uh, all the players, hey, make up your own career, you know, do do what Whatever. I don't. I am 100% not worried that it's going to be unbalanced, um, because like if somebody focuses on all the combat um, skills, well, good, good for them. They'll be great in combat. They will not be good in in the rest of the encounters. The mm. usual thing about building careers, yeah. and you know, everyone. I trust everyone at the table, but it just seemed so because we had some examples in the core book. We had to have examples because. Mm. Because you, need, you have to start somewhere, but we we really did figure that this was the uh, easiest thing for people to come up with on their own. And it's not Star Wars, right? Like you're basically just picking eight skills. What else is there? You are exactly just picking eight skills. Yeah. I mean, so it's like which eighteen hundred words do you want to count so that you don't have to pick eight <laughs> skills? 
Yeah. <laughs> for three settings, isn't that about what it would probably be like 600 words a pop? Mm. Yeah, we're probably looking at like four or five pages. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Double spreads. Now, now, things change pretty radically if you start introducing uh, specialization trees, but we'll come there. <laughs> <laughs> yes. We will come to <laughs> Nothing I will truly be uh, burned and pillaged for. <laughs> Which, by the way, is another another thing for players, I guess, technically. Mm. Right? Absolutely. Huh? Although they have to get made. True. Mm. So you get to everything. <laughs> I mean, if you go by that route, everything's for a player eventually. <laughs> All those adversaries the GM's building, oh, those are for the players. <laughs> True. Um, so uh, we also had another question from Wonder Duck. Um, interesting name um, on the FFG forums who wanted to know what section of the EPG do you feel adds the most to the player's experience and why? Why don't you take this one first, Keith? Um, I, mean, uh, I think the new setting archetypes are probably the, the low-hanging fruit there, but mm. uh, I mean, because that's going to influence a lot of their character. Mm. Yeah, I will, actually, I will actually say um, I think the new uh, vehicle section um, because it's something that could apply to any setting, and we do have vehicles for any setting. Mm. But um, vehicles and vehicle rules kind of add a whole new element to Genesis. And there were three vehicles in the uh, three. True. Yeah, yeah, mm. three, um, three vehicles in the core book. So there really what, and there really wasn't much you were doing with it. Yeah, I would, I would kind of agree with that. I, I think. Of, of, of what's added the most meat. I mean, I think so many people are going to get versatility out of that. Mm. I mean, although, congrats, um, good on you, Keith, not to just call it your own section. <laughs> Very unlike me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, th- I think that uh, a lot of people are getting a lot of use out of the spell section as well. That's certainly fair, too. Mm. Um I guess I wouldn't pick that one just because not every setting has magic. In no, it, that's true. That's true. But uh, oh. it's certainly the most fun to come up with. Because <laughs> <laughs> so many people are, are really sort of they're only really learning how to 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 do spells. Um, uh, you know, more so than than what they initially were uh, when Genesis first came out. So, um, so yeah, it's uh, I know that uh, my group uh, has just gobbled it up. Uh, with some of the new talents and uh, and definitely some of the especially the the uh, the transformation uh, that's uh, yeah. that's been a big one so uh, so yeah it's very very good all right so as we leave that section behind um, we get on to part one which is new settings now one of the more intriguing settings in this book in my opinion um, is uh, it introduces three entirely new settings we've talked a little bit about uh, in our previous questions as well as really strong guidance on building custom settings from scratch. So with, with each new setting, it includes you know, relevant tropes, uh, several new settings-specific character archetypes, uh, new gear, and new adversaries. So would you like to, first of all, talk to us about um, you know, the goals for the section and, and how you ultimately settled on these settings? Well, how we, I mean, the goals were to, um, we wanted to create new, we wanted to provide some new settings from the get-go. That was Mm. the goal. Um, One of them, actually the post-apocalypse setting, um, which was written by Jason Marker, was originally written for the Genesis Core Book. 
and it was one we had to cut. We didn't really have a good internal IP to go with it, mm-hmm. so we uh, we decided to leave it out for um, for now. But now here was a chance to take something that Jason had done and did a really good job on and bring mm-hmm. it back. Mm-hmm. And so with that, we were like, well, can't just drop in one setting. What are two? Let's talk about what else we could do. And that's sort of where the Age of Myth and Monster World came from. Mm-hmm. I mean, once we detached the idea from settings that um, FFG specifically had proprietary IPs for, um, it opened up a lot more a lot more options. So we really got to uh, really got to hit a few different uh, a few different ones. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's kind of where it came from. There. I mean, also, uh, yeah. I mean, I've watched. Uh, I've watched Troy and um, Clash of the Titans and everything just as much as the next person. So, <laughs> Sam, I know uh, uh, Tim Huckleberry wrote Monster World, and you mm-hmm. said Marker wrote uh, the post-apocalypse. Who wrote the Age of Heroes one? Was that you? Uh, Pierre Raymond Weger. Um, oh, for sure. Yeah, I w- um, I just did the uh, um, the adversaries, and uh, Max and I worked with him on the uh, setting specific gear but uh, so if you don't like the uh, if you don't like the mythological gear or the uh, gorgon with their uh, with their petrifying gaze that's uh, that's my fault you can blame me on that one <laughs> I love the mythological gear and Sam you were actually play testing out unbeknownst to us age of myth maybe somewhat sort of kind of at gamer nation con 6 were you not mm, yeah no I was <laughs> <laughs> Some of us recognize that. I, hang on, I mean, yeah, I was also testing out one of the new magic spells at uh, Gamer Nation Con Six. Oh, well, yeah! yeah. Um, for anyone who played uh, Cassandra, <gasps> I was testing out. Uh, that was um, me. Yeah! <laughs> Holy crap! I never realized that just until right now. That's amazing. There you go. I love that yeah, character. I, I love that game. That was fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> and and something that which was really really uh, the the way that it was done uh, was uh, with um, the superhero tone, which I just mm-hmm. think for any sort of mythic setting like that is uh, is completely apt. So uh, so yeah, it worked really really well. So if anybody's looking at, at doing um, Age of Myth, which we'll we'll get into some of our questions later on, uh, but uh, yeah, absolutely fantastic. So um, so yeah, didn't we get to fight like a giant cyclops at one point we, or something? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah we did. did. Yeah. You didn't go through the sewer and run into um, run into uh, Cherbidus. <laughs> oh, but it's hard to want to skip the fight with the giant cyclops. That felt pretty epic. <laughs> oh long. yeah yeah yeah. I mean. <laughs> Most people went for the Cyclops because you uh, you give an option for people to go in through the sewer or find the secret passageway in the hills, and everyone's like, "Oh, I guess the let's do the hills because it's not a sewer." <laughs> Honestly, Same. adventurers these days. <laughs> so, uh, so Sam, what's your favorite out of the out of the three? Who? I mean, do I have to choose? <laughs> you don't have to. We just thought we'd ask. No, no, no. That's fair. I like them all for different reasons. Hmm. I think actually my favorite might be uh, Monster World. Well, wow. because the uh, tone of the game changes a lot yeah. um, when you do a Monster World. Hmm. Uh, I really like Age of Myth just because it feels so. Uh, 
Like I could repurpose that for a superhero game. I feel like pretty easily. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, because I worked on vehicles and here's the shameless plugs. I was just <laughs> holding it off, but the post apocalypse setting is great for uh, messing around with all the vehicle stuff. So it is. You have, bad. You have post-apocalypse movies like Mad Max and stuff like that, where they're very like vehicle focused, right? Mm-hmm. Like we all know the, these vehicles with the spikes and the, all that stuff on them. Yes. And, uh, I really liked the depths Mark or went into on, uh, what creates your apocalypse and so forth. Also, mm-hmm. if I had to pick a favorite sidebar, um, it's on <laughs> uh, page 38, his have a nice apocalypse sidebar. Yes. Uh, <laughs> that sounds like you, Marker. Yelp. Oh yeah. It's, it's classic him and also <laughs> fantastic advice because, I've seen Mad Max of Fury Road, <laughs> and I've also seen The Road, uh, and yes. I know which one I'd rather be in. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, seriously, like that the markers all over that. There's that one, and also the very first sidebar in in Post Apocalypse um, is the one on radiation. It's called A Certain Glow. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Maybe she's born with it. Maybe it's radiation. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, oh, I, love very, very good. I love it. Yep. So let's get into some of these actual settings here. Um, you know, when we when we're in this part one for, for new settings, chapter one is obviously Age of Myth, this setting of mythological epics, obviously inspired by our own varied mythological histories here. It introduces the demigod, the sorcerer and the trickster archetypes. Now, we had a series of questions for you guys about this. First and foremost, um, in, in Age of Myth, the archetypes seem more balanced to all other archetypes. Was was this a design choice, or did you consider making them overpowered to match the flavor of the setting? You know, especially with that kind of superhero tone sort of flavor. <laughs> we thought about it, but um, the nice thing is the superhero tone can be laid over anything. Mm-hmm. So um, the superhero tone can be just be applied to those archetypes. So in the end, we wanted... Uh, something a bit more balanced and uh that also that also means that you can theoretically use some of these in other settings as well mm. so like um the trickster for example also does provide the uh i mean the demigod and the sorcerer well, maybe i could see the demigod and maybe some other things if you thor and a modern mm. day superhero yeah thing, right sure. yeah. Yeah. um but the trickster especially just provides you with uh with that, uh, with that cunning-based char- um, starting character archetype that uh, I think a lot of people have been looking for as well. Mm, absolutely, and the trickster is uh, is Loki all over. So yeah, <laughs> so I mean very, very Loki, good. Odysseus. Yeah. Um, there's a there's a Chinese trickster god too. Um, yeah, <laughs> but yes, all all over the that. monkey god, right? Yeah, that's mm. right, the monkey king. Yeah. Yeah, the Monkey King, there it is. Very, very cool. So um, could you explain how the Sorcerer's Supernatural Suspicion, can you explain how that works? Sure. Basically, they... uh the, the idea is that um, one, so one, the first of the mechanics, right? Once mm. per session, after you make a magic skill check, you can spend a story point to re-roll any of the dice in the pool of your choice, mm. which is super powerful, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's, uh, it's the re-roll ability that uh, natural gives you, except instead of re-rolling the check, you're picking and choosing what you re-roll, and that can be 
um, challenge dice showing mm. the despair. Mm. That can be proficiency dice showing a blank. You know, you yeah. So very powerful. Mm. But uh, after you use this ability, all of the NPCs that were involved in that encounter mm-hmm. gain. But the idea is to play off of the uh, in a lot of uh, a lot of sort of the age of myth stuff. The when the sorcerer shows up or the magic user or whatever, it's scary, right? Mm. Um, they're throwing around spells. People get freaked out and all that. <laughs> so what they do is they get um, a fear motivation, basically a facet to their motivation. So they get fear your character. Wow. Um, and that's a motivation of theirs. Mm. And that means that um, you're, it follows all the regular rules for motivation. So mm. if your character tries to interact with those NPCs and tries to be nice to them, probably going to add setback dice to yeah. all of uh, all of their checks because mm. they fear him. But if he tries to then, I'm say he, but uh, if they try to interact with them, uh, with the NPCs by shouting at them, you know, getting all uh, bitter bowl baggins <laughs> you know, and all that, yep. then you'll probably probably get a boost die because they're all um, you're playing to their fear motivation as opposed to away from it. Mm. Um, so it just it just follows all the rules for motivations and facets of motivation. Mm. And it's just. Once you use once you use your super sorcerer's power and you know do something terrifying and awe inspiring, then everybody's like, I don't, I don't trust them. Uh, I don't trust them. <laughs> right, that explains that. Um, <laughs> and I think it's very fitting for this setting too. Mm, so. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. yeah. Now the next set of questions we had for this setting had to do with those adversaries. <clears throat> which, which personally I loved. I love the flavor of this. I want to run Age of Myths so bad I can taste it. <laughs> um, now, the first question actually comes from us. Talk to me about the djinn. Okay? <laughs> one, of, one of humanity's probably most favorite uh, mythological creatures of all time, the subject of, of a great deal of, of, of literary history um, and, and cultural usage. <laughs> now, the djinn, as presented here in the Age of Myth, seems to be missing the, uh, at least traditionally, powerful ability to grant wishes. Was this an oversight, or is this something that you felt was better left to the narrative? It definitely the latter. Um, we couldn't really think of a good way to present it as a mechanical subsystem mm-hmm. that wasn't um, horribly complex and didn't involve uh, cutting one or more of the other creatures that was in there. Mm-hmm. So we felt, I mean, when you, yeah, when you hear about stories like Aladdin or um, you know, other Arabian myths that have, um, that have um, jinn in them, they, it seems to be pretty, uh, it seems to be pretty arbitrary as to, uh, as to, how many wishes, what these wishes can do, all that stuff. So we figured it was much better to leave that as a, um, as a narrative thing. Yep. I I think, uh, I mean, I agree with you, of course, especially assuming the gym is that particular adversary profile acting as an NPC. But if you have like a player at the table who in the setting wants to play a gin and you just need a way to sort of, build a mechanic for granting wishes mm-hmm. i would look at uh, uh most wishes i think are going to fall into one or two already existing magic powers mm-hmm. and that would be uh, conjure and augment 
Mm. So I, I think I think most wishes are going to be I wish I was taller. I wish I was a baller. Yeah. I wish I had a girl who looked good. I would call her. Oh, or yeah. um, or I wish I had a million dollars or I wish I had this rare thing or whatever. So they're either conjuring something or they're changing the person asking for the wishes. So I would look at those two magic powers. I would maybe switch conjure to primal just because I feel like a djinn is going to be more of a primal magic. But yeah, if, if you had a player who wanted to be a djinn and do wishes, that's how I'd approach it. Yeah. Although um, in some mythologies, uh, djinn are um, either demons and or fallen angels. So well, it's a divine maybe too. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it kind of, it kind of just, I mean, turns out in real world mythology, it's all over the place. So, uh, <laughs> you know, pick, pick what works best for you all. <laughs> well, in one guy's divine magic is another guy's, you know, uh, animalistic, uh, primal magic right right <laughs> <laughs> now uh, our next question comes from Thea Fattel uh, who asks I'm interested in the thinking behind the Gorgon's petrifying gaze uh, that you mentioned before Sam uh, to immobilize or stone an enemy uh, she makes a cool or versus coordination check would you say this means that she's more of an ambusher, luring the targets in and forcing them to avert their gaze? As someone who has converted a fair few monsters, I'd love to know more about the process that went into making the Gorgon and the influences that shaped the choices of skills to use. Hmm. And Theo yeah, has, a... hasn't he? Hasn't he converted like 50 or something? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Pretty much. <laughs> it's like a ton. Right. You had some thoughts about this when you were playtesting it, didn't you, Huli? I did. I did. And I can't remember what they were. <laughs> mostly, uh, <laughs> mostly along the lines of, dear God, why are you letting this in the book? <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> I mean, it was, uh, it started out a lot. I mean, y'all think it's brutal now. It started it a lot more brutal. Um, <laughs> can confirm. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, added in a had to add in a sidebar about what to do if your character's turned to stone. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, no. So um, cool versus coordination. The yes, the thought was um, taking somebody by surprise or um, um, by ambush or so forth, because that seems to be how the gorgon works, or at least you know that was. That was my take on it. Um, it's like a D&D reflex check, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, so coordination being your ability to not look at them, but then cool, you know, the Gorgon, uh, the Gorgon just staring at you. I mean, staring you down basically is kind of the definition of what cool is. Hmm. And uh, also has to, you know, not uh, if you're charging at the Gorgon with a sword and has to stare at you as opposed to dodge or anything like that. Hmm. So, Mm. Yeah, that was the thoughts there, and then yes, we uh, discussed uh, we discussed a lot of like what uh, how easy should it be to turn the target to stone? Um, <laughs> how awful is it to turn a character <laughs> to stone? Uh, I mean, she's good at it. She's real good at it. Oh yeah. Um, and in the end, we decided the Gorgon should be ter pretty terrifying, and that's why we made them as dangerous as they are with mm. that. But it does require a triumph to actually turn somebody to stone, mm. and then we added in the section on, here's what you do once your character's been petrified, mm. like, or what your friends can do to save you. Yeah. And look, another thing that, that could be considered as well is that cool is a present skill. 
So, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's how alluring it, it, um, she is as well. So, sure, I guess you, you may have considered charm as well, but uh, I think that, that cool because it is related, as you say, to that uh, initiative slot. Uh, that uh, that it, it works the best, I think. So I didn't have a problem with it. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good point. Tied to it's a good point about it being tied to presence. Mm. Mm. I, yeah, I don't know what other skill you would have used. Charm just feels thematically wrong. I yeah. would agree. Oh, I agree. Yeah. What you're not uh, seduced by all those uh, snake hair. <laughs> Hey, I, know, I don't think she me. wanted the men around. You know what I mean? It wasn't yeah, that's true. Luring them to get turned to stone. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, get out of my cave. I want to be alone with my statues. Or right. <laughs> also, now my cave is full of statues. This is starting to get ridiculous, guys. I love it. I love it. Okay, so as we continue on uh, through part one into chapter two, we get into Monster World. Now, this is, as you said, one of your favorites, Sam. Um, it's a setting of horror monsters, both supernatural or man-made. This is what perfect for your 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 Van Helsing, your Cthulhu, your your Buffy games. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously introduces the Curse Shifter, the Dampier, and the Fearless Slayer, uh, and the Lore Master archetypes. Um, and if if Lore Master isn't Giles, speaking of a Buffy game, I don't know what is. <laughs> <laughs> um, or Van Helsing, for that matter. Yeah, true. I mean, traditional yeah, Van Helsing, not... Uh... Or Bishop in an Aliens vs. Predator game. Oh, yeah. Ooh. 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 That is it. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> you could do Monster World as a uh, as an alien one, like the first alien, not the second. Hmm. Yeah, that would be cool. Hmm. Okay, now my, now my brain's going. <laughs> so... Wow. You, you could swap them over with... Uh, or you could bring in the Monster World into Android. And have it as sort of like um, uh, oh, some sort you of totally thing. Could. Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. That would be cool. <laughs> now I want to do that. <laughs> That's the problem with going through these books with you with a number of people. It's sort of all of these settings just get thrown out everywhere, and it's great. Oh, there's just not enough hours in a day. <laughs> so. All right, one of the cool. Speaking of the mishmash of of. Uh, a future and, and 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 unusual. One of the cooler things I've seen online, I fr- I it may have been Reddit. I was trolling some guys working on a Genesis setting. Are you guys are you guys fans of pulp? Sure. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with the character known as the Phantom? Yeah, uh, the, yes, the Billy actually. Zane, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god, a, they made they made a movie, right? So Phantom <laughs> is like is like this old school pulp hero, and actually one of the first comic book heroes ever as we know them today. Mm. He was the first guy to have that kind of the first ever comic book character to have the skin tight, you know, spandex bodysuit ever. Mm-hmm. Um, and he kind of straddles that line. So anyway, um, <laughs> he like 15, 20 years ago, and like maybe like 20, more than that, maybe like 20, 25 years ago, there was a very short lived cartoon um, called Phantom 2099. <laughs> oh, really? Yes. <laughs> and it, was, it was the same art direction as the guy who did Eon Flux, the same oh, artist. Oh, God. Okay. Wow. And so it had that look of the Eon Flux cartoon. Um, and yeah, they made like a couple seasons of it. I, I, I think I actually think I remember seeing it when I was a kid once. But um, but yeah, the idea is that it takes place in 2099, and it's still the Phantom because the title passes from generation to generation, right? Yep. Sure. And so this guy's like, I'm making a Phantom 2099 setting, and it's like now I have Monster World and I have Android. It's it's all I need. And, <laughs> and so he's he's mashing it up, and I it's just it's That's... absolutely brilliant. That's fantastic. That is actually fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> I love gamers. 
All right. <laughs> One thing that I will mention with regards to the monster setting as well, um, just looking at some of the gear, uh, is Symbol of Faith, which is something that can just mm. as easily be brought into any fantasy setting when you're talking about, you know, turning undead and, and things like that. That, uh, you know, especially with minions and, um, you know, if they're if they're all copying four strain, they're all copying four wounds. So, you know, if, uh, oh, if, you've, yeah, if, you've, sure. if you've got a character like that, and, and discipline is amazing to, to use as a skill. So, um, yeah, I think that's uh, that's something that that may be overlooked. Um, that uh, that yeah, people can bring that in. I think that's cool. Mm-hmm. And you can use it in a. Uh, you can also use it in a like. You don't have to use it in a combat encounter. Even um, mm. you can pull that out in a uh, social encounter. Oh, I mean, if yeah. you're in a setting where you socially interact with uh, evil uh, supernatural nonsense. Mm. Indeed. And, uh, Cough, cough, monstrad. I mean, I guess the effect's somewhat the same at that point. Yeah, yeah, but still. <laughs> you might also be starting a combat encounter. <laughs> <laughs> well, four strain means that that's two less spells that they're casting, so that's fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, Huli, you talk about symbol of faith. I was when I when I read through this, I was like, ooh, silver weapons. Yes. Uh, yeah. There's something to bring in uh, to my fantasy games. You know, if I want to introduce werewolves. Mm. Um. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, loved it. Mm. One of the other fun things was, um, uh, and yeah, Hug did an amazing job on this. But uh, there's no uh, there's no armor in uh, Monster uh, Monster World, and that was actually done deliberately because you're the whole thing is usually regular people running into these terrible things. Mm. And that's also why the weapons are like, I mean, there's some of them are like traditional, like the crossbow or wacky, like the sunlight grenade, but then, you know, a hunting rifle and a pistol. Cause when they, in the original Dracula, when they go after Dracula, little gold ring and Van Helsing and all that, they're just wearing their suit coats. And, you know, <laughs> gold ring has a, uh, has a double-barreled hunting rifle because he's some Ponzi English nobleman, but <laughs> that's it. Well, I mean, if you're using this sort of thing for uh, for like a Cthulhu game, you know, oh, and you, you mm-hmm. bring in the uh, the horror tone, you know, it goes down to you know you don't have to run very fast; you just have to be able to outrun the slowest person. So if you're <laughs> in, if you're yep. in armor, <laughs> that's going to probably yeah, slow you down true. a little bit. <laughs> You make I mean, an athletics check. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, all, and also, I mean, if you do, if you switch the settings, like talking about doing like Alien, the uh, Monster World setting, mm. then you're just going to use the stuff from Android. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Or Amflux, yeah, the uh, setting or whatever. Mm. But, I want to uh, add, add a little kids on bikes and do like a Lost Boys Monster Hunter situation. Ooh, I'm a Lost Boys. That's good. God, that's guard me so much when i was a kid <laughs> and they start cracking Boy, open cool. the uh the like the they start cracking open the people's heads like beer cans <laughs> if, if you want to get unscarred just re- just think back to sexy saxophone man all the 80s when uh when everyone's like yeah the saxophone that's that's going to be, uh, that's the next big thing. <laughs> Saxophone's the new guitar, man. It's the 80s. Right. Nope. I'm challenging right. anybody out there to put that in a tone. <laughs> <laughs> Saxophone solo. Yes, very good. Spend a uh, story point. And uh, yes, very good. <laughs> 
So as we continue through this uh, this part, we get into chapter three again, which is post-apocalypse. Um, you know, as we said, it, it's the setting of, well, post-apocalypse. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but, you you know, you talk about, I love, you You were talking about this earlier, The all the different flavors. You know, what's the flavor of your apocalypse? You know, post-nuclear war, zombies, machine uprising, pandemic, you know, there's more. Um, you know, it lets, us, it lets us play Fallout or Mad Max or The Walking Dead. Mm. Joy. Yeah. All those things we don't have licenses for. Well, FG doesn't have licenses for. <laughs> I've, I've always wanted to, to do a Walking Dead. And look, there's certain item or one particular one uh, that's in here that um, screams Walking Dead as far as I'm concerned. I think oh. you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> The good old baseball bat. Um, it's brilliant. As soon as I yep. saw that, I'm just going, that's amazing. <laughs> I mean, also Escape from New York. Come on. Yeah, true. It's, that's very true. That's very true. And um, I will say, uh, when I was first going through this particular setting, when we talk about the flavors of the apocalypse, I was immediately drawn towards stellar phenomena. Because mm. some of the best, cheesiest apocalyptic movies are all about you know, the aftermath of the stellar phenomenon. Mm. And then, as I continued in the book, and I got to Keith, your amazing chapter on vehicle creation, I thought, how can I bring that into post-apocalypse? So my brain did actually not go to Mad Max first. Oh. Where my brain went was a movie called Maximum Overdrive. Oh, oh my God. That's Stellar phenomenon, post-apocalypse, living vehicles that want to kill you. <laughs> you can mix it in with Monster World then, and then you've got, uh, what was that movie? There's two, oh, you've, got, you've got Christine, for a start. Um, and yeah. then what's the that other one? Monster was it Monster Truck? Please don't tell me it was called Monster Truck, um, where it was a truck that um, had sentience and was going around killing people. No, that was Maximum Overdrive, wasn't it? Wasn't it? Is that what it was? Yeah. Like all the machines came to life. Yeah, wow. wasn't a big truck with a goblin face or whatever. <laughs> There's remember. an argument for Pacific Rim is post-apocalypse. Ooh. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah. Yeah. Especially <laughs> since there are a couple mechs in. Uh, yeah, just just to bring it back to vehicles again, sure. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> but uh, yeah. but yeah. So, um, were there any sort of specific things as far as the the archetypes, uh, Sam? Were there any specific things that you wanted to definitely touch base on? Because we've we've got the mutant, we've got the sleeper, and then we've got the survivor. Which survivor is just absolutely amazing, and people should only be playing survivors because their stats are nuts. <laughs> Um, <laughs> so w- was there any sort of specific goals that you were, you wanted to like tick off there? No, I mean, so the mutant sleeper especially were, um, markers, um, original ideas as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he, he wanted to have mutants and he wanted to have, uh, people who were in, uh, shelters, um, like a vault like structure, maybe mm-hmm. no, um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, want people who, uh, Regular, and then we realized through testing that we needed a uh, a classic survival, which mm. ended up being our another cunning archetype that you can use. Mm. Um, and yes, they are really good. They, uh, I mean, they can strain out a lot easier than uh, than everyone else. Yep. But uh, if uh, if you're good with balancing your strain and uh, spending those advantage to uh, heal it up, <laughs> or uh, just not getting pushed over the edge, they're a uh, they're a good. Uh, they're a good archetype to play. Mm. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, survivors like, especially for most post apocalypses, like 
there's a lot of survivors as the basics, yep. but you could use pretty much any human-ish archetype, I feel like, for uh, post-apocalypse. Yeah. Depending on your setting, too, right? Like, if you're doing Zombieland, you're definitely going to have other than Survivor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. To represent that sort of mix of characters. Mm. Yes. Absolutely. Very, very cool. And I think everyone should learn something from Survivor, because it, it's a fantastic example of how you can still have a an archetype that gives you a hundred starting XP, has a one in nothing and a three in something. Mm. And and it does it through that just as you, you know as you alluded to earlier, that ridiculously low willpower. But that's mm. that's that's this is trade-off. People when we're when we when we are building our own archetypes, we tend to we tend to really focus our trading off of starting XP into characteristics, into mm-hmm. the big sticks. And you, it, it's such a limiting way to think. There's so many other options available to you. Um, so everyone should be reading Survivor and learning that lesson. It's a good lesson. And to be fair, like the always prepared ability isn't quite as epic as maybe some of the other special abilities. Either. No, no, it's not. But no. you get 100 XP. And, and the always prepared, it almost mitigates the low uh, strain threshold. Well, it only comes into play after the encounter is right. done. So... Uh, as it long as you can make it through, you can uh, recover from it. And that was the idea. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Look, one of the other things that I really liked in the setting as well was uh, the, the sidebar on page 34, uh, which was scavenged weapons and armor. Um, mm. Especially if you're sort of in that sort of setting where you are getting people to count their ammo. And, uh, you know, it, it then becomes a real focus to make sure that you're, you know, some, make sure that you're supplying your community or whatever it is that that um, you're or just your the team of people that you're with um so um, yeah i thought that was uh, uh, quite a unique way of doing it and um which i thought was great so um, well done there oh thank you that um i've got to give some credit there to um another playtest group uh um darren west's group and uh i think uh aaron um yeah aaron was uh the guy um well, it was the whole group, but uh, <laughs> Aaron was the one who cornered me at uh, at uh, Gamer Nation Six and uh, talked about that. Right. <laughs> Aaron Weecraft. So, um, <laughs> no, but um, thank you. Yeah, that is a good example of a rule that uh, changed, and you know, we came up with something newer and better as playtesting went on. Mm. Yeah. So, and then we had chapter four, which is skills and talents. Now, it's only a one pager, um, but it's really, really cool. And it gives, um, you know, all the, uh, the core rulebook skills and talents uh, and how they apply to the, the settings that come a little bit before it, uh, which I think is, is very, very useful as well. So, um, so yeah. It's economical. Too, yeah, like, absolutely. that could have been like a whole half a page in mm. each of the sections. Yeah, yep. instead it's it's all in one page. Yep, so. really, really good. That is, thank you. Yeah, that is exactly it. Mm. I'm, I it was it was very impressive when it was like oh oh oh, um, it's like cool. Done with that. Very <laughs> nice. <laughs> And this leads us into chapter five, which is creating a setting, Um, a a huge chapter that details a comprehensive six step process to define and fully flesh out your own custom setting. Mm. Um, Now, we had a related question to this. Uh, Chris Denyer from Facebook asked the following. He said, it would have been nice to see a superhero setting as an example setting. 
was that cut or is that something coming down the road? Obviously, I know you can't answer that. <laughs> yeah. Um, we didn't put um, a superhero setting in because um, we still felt like that the uh, tone, the superhero tone worked better for that because superheroes seem to fit into a lot of different settings. Um, also, I'm, uh, I mean, to be perfectly honest, um, yeah, I don't know what may happen in the future with this. Um, I know for myself, um, I think the most uh, compelling superhero settings are the ones that have already been defined and owned by um, certain companies, <laughs> certain large, large, large companies. But I don't know. I mean, maybe it's just me. I find um, I find inventing your own like if we had invented our own superhero setting with the Fabulous Five and the uh, <laughs> wait. That's probably a group of superheroes too. I don't actually think it's possible <laughs> to. Uh, yeah, the Z-Men. Yeah. 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 Exactly. <laughs> I mean, that's part of the problem, right? Like, you literally can't do anything. That, I mean, you have to go so far afield to come up with something that isn't going to uh, violate somebody else's copyright. Mm. That uh, you know, best of luck to you. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm just superheroes are a superheroes are a are a unique beast. Mm. Um, I mean, not to get too far off track, but they are our own popular mythology of today yeah you know you can show a picture of superman to just about anyone and they understand on kind of a fundamental level what superman is Mm. and so yeah superheroes are superheroes are weird that way so i think the the biggest issue with the with the superhero setting as you say is that you've got so many different ways that you can do it. And I know that I've started working on my own little superhero setting to, to potentially put up on the foundry when it's all done. But I've gone backwards and forwards because you, you read another comic and it's from a different company and they do things very differently. And then you start sort of every hero, it's sort of, it's really difficult to put in that into a, uh, a setting that you can, you know, without being too generic um, mm-hmm. because you, you, if you do a generic setting, you've really got to go, right, well, this is, um, you've got to cover all of your bases. And I think that's really, really hard to do. And I know that, you know, there are other companies that are out there that have successful, uh, D20 type, uh, systems. Um, so mutants and masterminds, um, and they're absolutely fantastic, but uh, they've really had to create their own setting to put that in. Because uh, otherwise it becomes too generic and it can't answer all of the questions. So um, I think you, you, I'm just really repeating exactly what you've just said. But um, <laughs> no, but you, you have a good point. Like um, unless we uh, unless we had 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 like a whole new book and probably a whole lot, whole lot more. I mean, none of the setting setting guides we've done non not released yet keyforge setting is even is the closest one to something there where there's forging completely new ground but even then there's stuff that's established the setting already like yeah i mean for for me if i'm gonna like home kit bash a superhero setting i think it's less about the setting right because if you look at like marvel like 90 percent of it's just new york city yeah (laughs) it's it's just the modern day setting right for Mm. for a lot of content not everything obviously you could go to wakanda or you could go to you know uh places in outer space and stuff but it's mostly the modern day setting i think the trick is just that for character options you're opening up like the entire core book 
and the ex- expanded player's guide, like all the options. Yeah. Because mm. there's going to be like some people with sci-fi weaponry and armor and advanced stuff, and there's going to be some people that have you know magic powers and some people that have other stuff going on, like the superhero tone stuff going on. Mm. So I, th- I think you just had to open the whole book up to do yeah. superheroes properly. Yeah, but it's mostly sure. about character options, not setting options, yeah. in my view. Yeah, the the biggest problem I think with any sort of superhero setting, and I know that we're getting a little bit off track, but the the biggest problem with the superhero setting is you do have such diverse power levels. Um, you know, you've got your Avengers power level. If we're talking about Marvel, and then you've got your street sort of heroes, and then you've got Spider Man, who's sort of kind of halfway in between everything. Um, so you know, it's it's that's probably the the hardest thing is to work out what sort of power levels you're going to be using. And yeah, you've but got even, so even, even in the Avengers, man, it's uh, Black Widow and Hawkeye are keeping up with Iron Man <laughs> and Hulk and Captain America to some extent, right? True, 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 very true. But that's almost an entire episode uh, alone. <laughs> it's probably like sopers. a month of episodes. <laughs> Indeed. So, yes, this section with its 17 pages of setting creation rules, um, it has loads of tables. Great examples uh, and helpful sidebars uh, with, uh, and basically we had very, very few questions in relation to that, mainly because it's so self-explanatory. So, you know, if you are creating your own setting, either by yourself or with friends, make sure that uh, you go and take a close look through that section, mainly for ideas and uh, and other methods of, uh, you know, bringing your setting that uh, that you're creating to life so um, you know well done on that section um, sam and keith uh you know loads of resources there for uh, for gms all right so chris where to from here yeah i think we're ready to move into part two mm. uh the uh the expanded rule creation uh, now, yes. one of, it's pretty much one of the, the more intriguing aspects of the Genesis Core rulebook uh, was, uh, you know, the massive section on creating custom skills and talents and, and archetypes uh, and uh, careers for our own games. But this book seems to have doubled down with the addition of creation rules for two other important things, uh, one of which uh, one of our guests has played a big part in, uh, which is the vehicles, and then adversary creation as well. So between the two of you, what can you tell us about the, what the goals were for both of those sections? Talk to us a little bit about that process. I mean, Sam, correct me if I'm wrong. I did <laughs> this entire chapter, right? Yeah, it's pretty much just all you buddy (laughs) i mean well the the first swing at it anyway there were a lot of uh other people who helped bring it to its final form right Mm -hmm. but yeah i worked on both uh, the adversary Mm -hmm. rules and the vehicle yeah you were the uh you were the trailblazer in this for sure (laughs) the the initial goals were exactly what it says on the tin we wanted one a big collection of example vehicles because we didn't have that and to be perfectly honest um the closest we had was the were the vehicles in shadow of the beanstalk which are very unique to shadow of the beanstalk and still pretty limited so yeah we had we didn't have nearly as all that many vehicles for genesis and they are um there's a lot of stuff you can do with them because it covers all these different timelines and settings and so forth but then because we had so much create your own stuff in the core book, 
we had to have a create your own vehicle section as well. Mm. Uh, and similarly for adversaries, adversaries was um, we had an idea early on that we wanted to. Well, one, same thing. We wanted to create some generic adversaries that uh, you could use with a variety of settings. Mm. And so um, that's um, that's where what Keith did with the equipment packages and the uh, and the sort of generic adversaries that you can slap these sets of gear onto um, came from because we played around with a lot of different ideas on like doing uh, doing like characters from a bunch of different settings but that got too big or doing stuff that was super generic but that got uh, that just didn't leave anyone it left everyone feeling sort of cold when they read it like um, you know, at one point we had like ranged warrior and it was like with a ranged weapon, this could be anything from a rifle to a bow. And everyone was like, uh, I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> um, you know, it just, it was too fourth wall breaking, I guess. Yeah. And also then we had this idea about, you know, it'd be really cool to have a way to try and create combat encounters and social encounters with some sort of challenge rating. I wonder if we could come up with something. And famous last words there, because it turns out coming up with a uh, challenge rating system. Um, and Keith, you know this better than everyone. Anyone now. Yeah. <laughs> I was just, I remember being, uh, and obviously, whatever, I was happy to have the work. But I remember beating my head on my desk a long time. And not even like just working on the problem, but saying like, why am I the one doing this? Why isn't there like a team of six people that are protesting this every day at lunch? I don't know. That work in the same building. Why aren't they doing this? They should do this. Uh, I probably spent more time on that than I did anything else. It was that and uh, finding like generic words for the various adversaries hmm. for, for that were like not generic, but like, uh, setting neutral words for the various adversaries. Yes. Yeah, we didn't give you a, a simple job. No. <laughs> <laughs> I earned my money on this one, for sure. Well, we got what we paid for and more out of it, so uh, you were the right person for the job in this case. But, yeah, that was basically the basic goals of the section. Mm. I remember it as uh, Sam telling me, like, look at what we did for all the create a weapon, create a talent, create a whatever rules. <laughs> And just do that for vehicles <laughs> and uh, uh, and do it like because it, it, there's something in there already for adversaries. But he's like, it's really short. So like click in like an extra level of detail to help people like really get into the nuts and bolts of uh, creation. And then for like the spread of like what's in there for vehicles, I just wanted like a good mix of stuff appropriate to like any kind of game I could think of. Mm -hmm. And then for the adversaries, I just wanted to cover the way I was kind of looking at it was like every approach to an encounter, I wanted there to be uh, an adversary type for that. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, I tried to think of like, well, you could come at this, you know, melee combat or ranged combat or uh, you're buffing or you're debuffing or you're tanking or you're, you know, all these different kind of roles for both combat and social encounters and a few different skill challenge type situations. And we also uh, wanted uh, creatures in there just because right. like yeah. animals you can actually use in pretty much any setting. Yeah. And it's been, um, you know, like I think to some other popular role-playing games and how in the back of uh, 
the player's guide, they just had a section on like, you know, here's a dog and a tiger and all that. And it's like, man, that is actually really handy. Mm. We should have something like that. <laughs> Even if you're just going to make your own anyway, like, oh, but I need a llama or whatever. Well, yeah. That's <laughs> uh, fine, but at least you have like maybe two different creatures where it's like it's something like a mix of these two. You have like something to work off of. Yeah. I think for Genesis especially, that's important to like give somebody at least a starting point. Mm. We also got to get a little silly with it, um, <laughs> a.k.a. the Kraken. <laughs> <laughs> that's not silly at all. <laughs> with as many, as many ships uh, as you have in here, it, you've got to have something that's going to attack them. Absolutely. I do love my ships. <laughs> and you, being in the Navy... Turns out, also love your ships. I, I mean, I, I care about it. I care about yes. representation. You had uh, you had some opinions about. Uh, <laughs> yeah, some, we went some... back and forth on a few things. I think. Yeah. Like, I don't know, Sam. This is how I remember it, but <laughs> you can tell me what you think. <laughs> yeah, it's not like I sailed in the uh, various oceans on a friggin' aircraft carrier for four years. Yeah. <laughs> that for a minute. One of the things that I really, really liked about the adversaries uh, with having so many, uh, you kind of touched base on it, on it before, is to have all of these additional abilities that uh, when you're creating your own creatures, uh, you know, whether you're converting it from something else, that you've got stuff to draw from. Um, and when it comes to adversaries, I think that's most people will make their own to suit whatever setting that they're in or to, to make it a little bit different or if they're converting from D&D or whatever else. So to have a range of different abilities that you can just pull from uh, is uh, is very, very handy. Um, but, you know, if there, there are so many different adversaries that are in there uh, that, you know, one of the things that gets asked a lot um, in my table uh, is uh, when they do a summon. Uh, you know, what can they summon? So to have all of these, you know, basic creatures that they can summon or that they can reskin uh, just makes uh, a whole lot of sense. So uh, so it's really, really good in that regard. Well, and Huli, as you well know, when you're writing adversaries in Genesis, you can write them so quickly. Because oh, it's absolutely. so easy. Just pick some attributes, pick some skill ranks, and you're off to the races. Yep. Maybe two or three talents. Uh, all the work is in like, well, what's the special ability for this thing? Mm. Uh, and, and like for your table, you don't necessarily need one for everything. But I feel like if I'm going to go ahead and stat them up and get paid for them, I'm going to at least have like, I'm going to give Sam a special ability to not print. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> like if he doesn't like it, he could just take it out. But I'll, I'll give him something. Yeah. Because I feel like that's that's the only that's the effort of building the adversaries because it's so easy in the system. Yeah. I so said we printed most of them actually. Because yeah, right. if we're going to print it, we should probably do something interesting with it. Mm. Right. And and I just, I talked to some of my friends in the industry who work over at, you know, Paizo or Watsi or for a third party publisher and the same. Mm. And they're like, oh man, what a bummer. I had to do like a 12th level big bad evil guy today. And that's been like my three days or whatever. And I'm like, yeah. what? Like I, I just had to do like 80 NPCs and I, <laughs> I did it in like 12 days. <laughs> 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 well, it's truly first world problems for all of us. <laughs> uh, yeah, fair, but uh, uh, but it's extra spoiled because it's so easy to create uh, yep. memorable adversaries. In mm, the system. Absolutely, because there's one of the things that that when people are converting from other systems, 
that there seems to be this tendency to want to put all of their special abilities in them. Uh, I've been looking at somebody did um, a it's it's just a text file that that somebody's put out um, that is I think it's called the creature catalog and they've done like the lich and literally the lich goes for a whole page yeah. when it's converted over to uh, like the the genesis from from the foundry and okay. I'm just going why you're not going to be using all of those abilities anyway and the the art behind the adversaries which I think Keith you'll attest to is more about let's just work out what it's basic thing that it's always going to do is maybe a secondary thing but it shouldn't really have too many abilities otherwise it's just going to be the same sort of process as what we had with D&D in my opinion and, and Pathfinder without sort of ragging on anyone um, is that you know it, it literally takes you a day to research all the stuff that it can do uh, for one particular adversary and you're, you're not going to be using it for any more than about 10 minutes in combat anyway. So. Well, for, for the writer's standpoint, like doing stuff in those other some of those other rule systems, the big problem is that uh, adversaries follow the same rules for character creation as yeah. players. Mm. Uh, so you, you spend all this time mucking about with – and Chris knows this well from his uh, mastery of uh, D20 <laughs> and Saga Edition Star Wars, right? <laughs> but uh, uh, you spend so much time just making sure like, oh, man, did I get all the plus ones and the this correct and did I get all the prewex for my – my cleave and my great cleave and my whatever else. Uh, and it, it's a nightmare for developers and, uh, to, to write that stuff because it just takes forever. Mm. Uh, you spend a lot of time on it. But uh, uh, it's cool because in Genesis, you don't have to follow any of those rules. So that helps. But to your point, and you know, everyone's mileage is going to vary, I think. Mm. But uh, Sam, I think we, we, you've told me many times that, that uh, testing shows most combat lasts about four rounds, mm. uh, which means it. If your adversary has more than four different options of things it could do, it's totally not going to get to all of them mm. in a combat encounter. Yep. And uh, people have this, I think, brain tendency to, to create their adversaries like they would players. They want to be versatile and able to do a bunch of different things in different situations. Mm. When really, like, you should be thinking, like, okay, this is a pretty much a combat-only monster. Here's two, one, two, or three attacks that it could do. And that's it. That's plenty. Yep. Uh, you know, you don't need 18 different things. Hmm. Uh, yeah, it go goes ahead. back to that comment that uh, Chris made um, earlier. Like, what about the gin and the uh, wishes? Hmm. That's That stuff can happen. Um, it probably happens outside of combat anyway. And hmm. it can be handled narratively. Yeah. Um, okay. when, when it comes to your lich... Does your lich need to, you know, have like, I, I'm trying to think of all those different stuff liches do, but yeah, like <laughs> how much of that stuff is just the narrative stuff about like that you can basically summarize in the paragraph above the adversary that says this is a lich and this is what it does right. and can be acted out. Yeah. I always go because I've talked about these rules since Star Wars. I always bring it to Wookiees. Uh, if you look at the D20 Wookiees, they have. Like rules for climbing claws, and rule, they have rules for everything a Wookiee could possibly do, right? Mm. Mm. Uh, whereas uh, Star Wars narrative dice just does not. But like it says it in there, and if you're the GM and the Wookiee's like, "So I'm climbing," it's like, "Cool, bro." Uh, and they mention their climbing claws. Here, have some boost dice. Yeah. Like, yeah, we don't. You don't need to have a rule to be like, "Here's some narrative boost dice for mm. you remembering 
about your character or whatever. Right. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Now, we've got a few questions in relation to this, uh, however. So, um, yeah, let's get stuck into those, shall we? It's it's been it's been creamy peanut butter up until now, boys. Let's get um, let's let's pull out the extra crunchy. Uh, we have a we have a we have a hefe. Would you say I have a plethora of questions? Um, uh, we we have a plethora of questions about both vehicle creation and adversary creation. So let's dive in. Um, starting with vehicle creation, uh, Kevin Pfeiffer, um, who you guys actually met at Gamer Nation Con Six, uh, he was there. Asks on Facebook. I just want to know who's responsible for the mecha suit and how balanced it is. We need a Gundam setting and we need it now. <laughs> <laughs> did you do the mecha suit? You did the mecha suit, right? I, you know what? There's two in there, and I definitely did like I didn't you did do the, the big strider, one. the tactical strider. I with someone else that came from. The, the, else. Okay, the tactical strider was me then. Um, yeah. I couldn't remember, um, and I added in the strider because. Um, Actually, to be perfectly honest, because I was because um, I keep I kept running this game at the time of small suited mechs, and I was like, "Well, I want a small mech in there, damn it!" <laughs> but but it yes. was you definitely asked for like some sort of mech yeah, or right. whatever. Yeah, in I, the I wanted the like, big one, time. and so, Max demanded it too. <laughs> <laughs> so it's only in the book because Sam, you know, wanted one and kept it in there. But uh, I wrote it, and then uh, I looked at like what I gave you guys versus what came out in testing. And it definitely got smoothed up a little bit for the better. Mm. So the testers, I would say that it's specifically because the question asks about how well balanced it is. I would say it's because of the testers. So mm. Darren, Hooli, and whoever else play tested the book. I mean, the damn thing's terrifying, but <laughs> it is a giant uh, power armored suit. And if watching um, Voltron on uh, Netflix has taught me anything, it's a giant power armored <laughs> suit beats everything. <laughs> and I, Voltron's like the only cartoon ever with a character named Keith in it. So it's, yeah, it's yeah. always a favorite. Always yep. a favorite. Yeah. It's a really compelling arc, too. Indeed. Mm. In the new one? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very cool. Now, Jared Crawford on Facebook uh, also asks um, I think I know the answer, but Star Wars fighter ranges are all short. The aerospace fighter from the core rulebook and other ships in the EPG have ranges of long or even extreme. Is this just because of how fighters are portrayed in Star Wars over and, and against other sci-fi space opera like Star Trek? It's how the range vans work, right? Yeah. Mm. <laughs> out of mind. The, yeah, it's, a, it's, worth, um, it's worth pointing out that um, vehicle rules are actually one of the things in, that in Genesis got cleaned up a decent amount mm. um, and changed too um because range bands like keith pointed out are not in star wars they're a continuation of personal scale range bands so your next range band your shortest range band in vehicle combat it's longer than your longest range band in personal combat Mm. in genesis there isn't there's just the regular range bands and then a sixth which is i don't know it's somewhere over there damn it um But, That's the best uh, description for that range band I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> so you have to have stuff that's like medium or long range because medium long range for people is roughly the same. We do talk about like if you have a if you have spaceships and it's all space, you can 
consider your medium and long and extreme range stuff to be you basically blow out the uh, range bands a bit so they're just bigger in general but for a lot of the a lot of the stuff it's like no i mean yeah it it needs it needs to have a rough equivalent to what you have in the uh um what you have for regular people answers that nicely it does uh next up also one from facebook jesse casey chimed in asking how many, assuming obviously because we've got we've got the the credit costs for so much when it comes to shipbuilding. He goes, how much in credits for for crew space, passenger sa- space, you know, drives, speed, you know, maneuver thrusters, handling, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, so God. this is an easy one. We covered it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So uh, if you look at on pages like sixty mm-hmm. and page sixty one and page sixty two, which maybe is the one they didn't see, <laughs> you could see all the prices for adding all of these things in the table. Mm-hmm. And then you multiply that price by the silhouette modifier, I believe, in most yep. cases. Uh, in most, there's a price maybe, modifier maybe. in there, too, yeah. Mm. Yeah. So, like, really big stuff, you multiply it even more. So Right. Because, like, if you want to add engines to, like, something gigantic, like uh, making an aircraft carrier faster, that's going to cost a lot more than making a motorcycle faster. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, like, it'll, it'll call out things like, what's the... Uh, you know, what's the encumbrance of a uh, silhouette four vehicle? And we t- put in there like it's a range. It's a hundred to a thousand. But that's because silhouette four covers a lot of different types of vehicles. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't just a matter of saying like one encumbrance is always uh, it's always worth 1.5 credits or 1.5 currency. Mm-hmm. We just had to be like, no, I mean you should your vehicle should be somewhere within these ranges but if you're building a, a semi truck should have a high encumbrance if you're building a uh, a silhouette for motorcycle i don't know what that would be uh, i guess something that your mech rode on double um, sidecars that are gig- i don't know what it would yeah. be but... what you know anyway but it doesn't have any encumbrance <laughs> but uh yeah, and the same similar sort of things have yeah happened. Well, I mean, like handling is covered with uh, max speed and handling costs, and then modified, like you said, with the price modifier. Mm-hmm. Crew space and passenger space—that's again something that's really more narrative than anything else. Um, the cost—it's hard to figure out what a cost is for those things because it really. But it is there. We tried. It's table mm-hmm. two dot one dash four. It's right there. Yeah. Yes. Thank yes, we you. did. It's, 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 it's lucky you actually thought about this. <laughs> but, uh, uh, but, but yeah, I think somewhere in there I do say, like, hey, man, all this is squishy. And when you determine your final price, like, maybe look at what, I mean, if it's a modern day setting, look at the modern day prices and maybe just go with that. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. it's all the prices, all the pricing is a little squishy. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, in fact, that is covered on page in there now i'm looking surprised oh, yeah. didn't, like, we didn't like bold and underline it, but it's <laughs> page 72 adjusted costs um talking about how vehicles prices may not match the actual cost of their real world equivalents and that's because uh we're trying to compare everything from a friggin' trireme to um, a missouri class <laughs> battleship well, right. and oddly enough that trireme in the modern days is probably a priceless uh artifact with with no actual cost but in the day to build it it have been the equivalent of i don't know 10 bucks who knows i mean <laughs> yeah the Ro- didn't the romans like just build whole fleets when they're fighting carcerage burn um get them all wiped out in storms and just be like well i guess we're doing another one now yeah i mean you know there was economy of scale they were making a lot of them <laughs> <laughs> plus yeah. very cheap labor 
very cheap labor. They're such nerds. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So our next question comes from Christopher Ruthenbank. Um, I always pronounce his name wrong, but uh, but that's okay. He's he's known as Seebeck on uh, the FFG forums. That may be easier for me. Um, in the EPG, we now have rules for creating vehicles. However, there was no mention of how to assign carrier space, which is kind of what we've already talked about. Um, carrier space for them. Do you have any suggestions for how to make vehicles like aircraft characters, carriers, or a battle star that can carry other vehicles? So like hangers and things like that. So I thought about this and this, like, I don't think we had room to really address this. It mm. was already, they were probably cutting me for space as it was. Cause I probably, you, what I you had. did an aircraft carrier and we ended up having to cut it because you did a very good air. You did a very good job creating an aircraft carrier, and that meant that it actually had very few like rules or um, so forth, because it was basically just a not very maneuverable tub with, um, and it has a lot of airplanes in it. Eighty, it should have, yeah. But yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, I think the the crux to doing this is deciding what encumbrance value you want to give each different silhouette of a vehicle. Mm. And, and it starts to get, like, really weird when a human is, what, five or ten encumbrance to lift a human? Mm. It's their brawn plus uh, five. Obviously, picking up a person is not the same as picking up a Silhouette 1 motorcycle. Like, those are going to weigh probably different amounts, certain mm. motorcycles anyway. But uh, you have to basically just figure out what you want, uh, eyeball what the range is for the Silhouettes. And when you set a Silhouette for the vehicle or an encumbrance value for a certain Silhouette of vehicle then, you know, it can fit that many. Just mm. treat it as adding encumbrance. That's what I would do. Yeah. But uh, uh, if you take that as sort of like a rough starting point, figure out what your vehicle sort of weighs, assign it an encumbrance value feels fair, and then just look at uh, add enough encumbrance capacity to your vehicle to, to carry it. And I would I would just keep it, that's more compli- That's complicated enough. Mm. I wouldn't make it more complicated than that. Mm. And use use real world examples too i mean right. wikipedia is your friend if you're making an aircraft carrier see how many aircraft are on your average aircraft carrier if you're making a uh, battle star actually i'd probably just use the uh, aircraft carrier uh, mm. um the modern aircraft carrier because it feels like that's what they did in galactica anyway <laughs> it, and to be fair if you're the gm just making stuff unless you're planning to allow your players to buy it don't worry about what it costs just give it what it needs mm-hmm. best advice yeah. Also, um, space space doesn't matter so much as the stuff you put in it when it comes to cost. Mm. So, saying like an aircraft carrier can fit like a hundred airplanes or whatever, you should be able to calculate its cost based on all of its other attributes. But the airplanes are going to be extra anyway. Mm. Also true. Yeah. yeah. That th- just because it could carry eighty aircraft doesn't mean it comes with them. Right. Mm. I bet the U.S. government would love that if that was a ca- the case. <laughs> the shipbuilding industry wouldn't. That's like a whole other <laughs> thing they have to learn how to do. Yeah. Portsmouth would be a very different looking place. <laughs> well, that's a good answer to that question. We had a, that question was also repeated uh, by Stormbreaker. Uh, excuse me, Swordbreaker on the FFG forums. Mm. Now, our next question also uh, from Seebeck, uh, Mr. Ruthenbeck, um, on the FFG forums. He wants to know special rules for vehicles modify the vehicle price by plus minus 10% per special rule. Are the price for weapons included in that vehicle price or are weapons considered a separate price? No, they're included. Oh, really? Because my answer was no. 
Oh wait, yeah. he's talking about yeah, modifying. yeah. He's talking about the special rules. Then a hundred percent, whatever the weapon costs to add in. Yeah, man. Yeah, I but, thought we calculated everything when we calculated those prices. We we calculated everything out, and then um, it was like, oh, it's also got resilient. Well, add uh, take ten percent of that number we just made. Right, 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 right. Yeah, hundred yeah, percent. I that I agree with. Yeah. Yes, but you're right. Uh, weapon calculating weapons. Um, you just use the uh, Genesis core rules and time, multiply it by 10. I didn't have room to reprint all of that, guys. <laughs> it's a tight book. It's 112 pages, man. Yeah. yeah. Show me which five vehicles you didn't want. So that- <laughs> <laughs> also, you really don't need it. <laughs> no, it's already in the Genesis book. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it works fine. Mm-hmm. All right. So Swordbreaker had, uh, from the FFT forums, uh, he had a question about the sidebar for crashing and sinking, which uh, is absolutely fantastic. I love that section. Uh, the uh, The box for the crashing, sinking, critical hit says to roll 1d5. This seems a bit unusual as Genesis doesn't normally use d5s, and it's likely that not every table is going to have them to begin with, unless this is an error. This seems like an unusual choice. Every table has a d5. <laughs> yeah, it's called a yes. d10. <laughs> Right. Well, the thing is, like, I don't know about a Genesis uh, dice box you could buy that has a, a D6 with numbers on it either, you know? Mm-hmm. There's only uh, one die with numbers on it we give you guys, and it's a D10 for critical rolls. So, mm-hmm. D10 are- divided by two. Yes, that is, that is it exactly. He's right. We don't usually use, um, reference the concept of a D5, mm-hmm. but uh, in this case, uh, I think going back to combats usually last four to you know like four or five rounds hmm. a d5 means that uh, a vehicle can sink over the course of a combat encounter yeah and yeah it's um but yes so you definitely have one we just have never asked you to use it before <laughs> <laughs> i love it easy easy answer easy answer yeah mm. it's, it's a d5 it's the same way you know if you have a d, if you d and d had the concept of the d2 mm. with the d3 <laughs> And you could, you could, or a D3, and you could, uh, you know, yeah, you just roll a D6 or a D4 and divide by two. Same thing. Well, shit, miniatures games love the D3. Well, <laughs> Warhammer ones do. Mm. Okay, so Christopher Ruthenbeck, again, Seebeck on the FFG forums, is back with I feel what I feel is a fantastic question. How do vehicles factor into the power level idea? Fighter squadron campaigns will be using vehicles a lot. I think it would be good to know how they interact with the power levels of adversaries. So, like, Sam, I'd be very (laughs) curious to hear your thoughts on this, but uh, (laughs) I looked at it and thought about it. I was like, man, that's a can of worms. I don't even know how I would approach it. But then I thought about it for a while, and if you actually look on page 81 of the adversary sort of challenge level rules, uh, and you look at step seven, equipment, and if you just treat the like the best weapon on the vehicle as like if you just treat it like a character otherwise, uh, you might get kind of close. You just got to remember they're going to have armor. That's the other part of it. And you're right. It's gets it, it gets messy. Um, yeah. It, get, it gets beyond the room we had here. Messy hmm. because of because of armor. And I mean, basically and this maybe is something that uh, Keith could do for the uh, Foundry sometime, mm. but it basically requires a separate challenge rating 100% system. 
Because even vehicles. if you do what I'm suggesting, all that's going to tell you is what it's going to be like to face a tank as like five dudes yeah. like standing on the ground. It's not going to balance out the fact that you are also in a vehicle. So it's going to be all kind of screwed up. Yeah, and if you don't have, and I mean, the other thing about vehicles, and this is the thing that's always been true, is that uh, if you don't have something specifically designed to fight and kill vehicles, like usually another vehicle or specialized anti-tank weaponry, um, whatever that is in your game, you know, if you're facing that tank and you just have regular character weapons, you're going to, you just never will do anything to it. Hmm. A struggle to do any damage at all, yeah. Because mm-hmm. armor won, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's got 10 points of armor and you need to do enough damage that you can actually get. Not only you need to do 20 damage because you need right. to get over them just to do one hull integrity. And that's so, armor one. Yeah. Yep. And that's one. <laughs> and that's why most vehicles have armor zero because Vin Diesel could fire a machine gun <laughs> at a sedan and it flips over. So yes. <laughs> just, just by the way, just to throw that out. Yeah. There. <laughs> um, so Dave Hutchins uh, via email, he asks us with uh, some of the largest sample vehicles like the battleship, you are resolving 20 ish gun shots on an arc with a single roll to save time and rolls. But it seems weird to have them all firing at the same boat or ship. <laughs> Sorry, Keith. Um, any, uh-huh. <laughs> any suggestions for making vehicle minion groups to make it seem like you are destroying more than single boats with attack rolls? So, um, yeah, I do have a suggestion, and it's page 228 of the Genesis Core rulebook, mm-hmm. the uh, gunner ability called Blanket Barrage, which mm. sort of is exactly to describe the situation you're talking about, mm. where, where a ship with a bunch of weapons or a, a vehicle with a bunch of weapons is firing at kind of everything defensively and blowing up a bunch of stuff. Mm. I would just look at that ability and use that. Yep. I, I like that one a lot for... Yeah. Um, for if you're fighting one, if you are like a battleship fighting one small target. Mm-hmm. The other thing is that um, if you did want to do a horde of starfighters, a horde of small boats, a horde of whatever, like an actual like flotilla of like five or six, mm-hmm. you could use the minion rules in the same concept that you use um, regular minion rules for because vehicles have hull integrity which is like wounds and they have armor which is like soak mm. so true so it yeah um if you're doing if you want a battleship to fight one um speedboat or a speedboat to try and sneak past a battleship i guess is more likely <laughs> then you definitely use keith's point um they would they would be putting up a you know blanket barrage of stuff and if you wanted a horde of speedboats attacking a battleship for some reason um then, sounds awesome yeah i mean <laughs> sounds very like james bond evil billionaires right. like secret plan or something but mm. yeah 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 i mean i feel bad for the speedboats but <laughs> <laughs> i mean me too but you know in the movies, anything could happen actually wasn't that in the james bond movie I'm sure it's in the real world too. Like the, the drug smugglers use speedboats all the time to get from South America to North America, like Cuba to Florida. And we have Navy destroyers out there just like, Nope. (laughs) (laughs) Nah, nah, no. (laughs) Thanks for playing though. (laughs) Oh, I love it. I love it. Okay. 
good, good, great suggestions. Um, okay, next question actually came in from Reddit. Uh, Ted Cahill II asked the following. Uh, the galley ship, um, the trireme, uh, has a ballista that deals one damage. Is that a typo? It's one vehicle damage, buddy. So that's 10 damage that you're talking yep. about, plus one per success. So, yep. uh, mm. you know, you could be talking about 20 or 30 personal scale damage easily. Mm. Yes. Good point. Well, yeah. Also, blisters weren't super good at sinking other ships. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's was mostly to smash all the other dudes on the deck of the other ship, I imagine, mm. or to uh, hit ground targets. Yeah, I think, yeah, that's... I mean, that's it's, a, it's a catapult, right? Uh, no, the ballista's the big arrow thrower. Oh, the big arrow thing. Fair enough. I think? Am I, am I lying? No, that's a, you're right, that's a ballista. It's a, it's yeah. a, it's a giant crossbow, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so, yeah, but if that hits you, you are straight screwed. Yeah. Or if there's a chain on it, you know. You yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, you reel them in, and now you have a boarding action happening, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, but... That that ten to one rule people forget about. Yep. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> not not all weapons are designed to uh, be effective against other vehicles. Mm. So. Well, and it has to say like personal scale specifically if it's personal scale yeah. damage, yeah. right? Yeah. It's in the special qualities for mm-hmm. Genesis. Yeah. Yes. Right. Nope, that's totally true. So don't get shot with a ballista; it'll suck. <laughs> <laughs> bad. bad. <laughs> also, really, really good for uh, tearing apart sails too. So yeah, yeah. Ooh, good point. Yeah, mm. I forgot about that. Called shot. Mm. Called shot. Exactly. Now, the winning question, can I say, um, is from Toby oh. Wheatley. Um, it's only winning because he's obviously, you know, won the prize, which was cool. Uh, and he asked via <laughs> Facebook, when creating your own vehicles, how would you, would you need to do something to balance multi-environment vehicles? For example, land or sea like the, uh, the Duck D-U-K-W? Uh, hovercraft, air, sea, some steampunk airships, for example. Like, we've all seen the James Bond where uh, the Lamborghini turns into a submarine or something like <laughs> My that. My God, I yeah. love that. <laughs> like, we've seen that one, right? So that's yeah. what he's talking about here, right? Is uh, uh, Or uh, Mask, they had the car who had, like, the, the doors that flipped open and turned into wings and could just fly. Oh, my God, mm. I forgot about that. Mm. Remember that? Yeah, so, like, this is a thing that happens in some, like, pop settings. Mm. Uh, I think this is something we'd cover under, like, a special rule mm-hmm. uh, noted on page yeah. 62, the bottom right-hand corner of page 62 yep. of the EPG. Uh, for something like this, I'd maybe double it from 10% to, like, a 20% thing mm-hmm. uh, and to, like, mechanically represent it. I'd keep it simple, and I would just find the uh, uh, another vehicle that moves the way you want it to move in the other mode, and just say make the rule is when you make that switch as a maneuver action, however you decide you want to do it, it now has this handling and this speed, and you know either flight or underwater or whatever operation. Mm. I think uh, Keith said the nail on the head. Yep. yep. Keep it simple. The easier, the better. So. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, I'm still over here going, mask. And also, Keith, um, it was a Lotus, that vehicle. Oh, the uh, the one that, um, that goes into the water in the... Um, uh, I'm trying to remember which bond it was. Um, it was a it was a Roger Moore one, wasn't it? Yeah, it was yeah, a Roger yeah. Moore. It was for your eyes only, is mm. what it was. For your eyes only. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Uh, yeah, and it actually, like, I'm working on a, a follow-up to Ready Fight that is all, like, uh, it's, like, for drivers and pilots for 
but the same format as Ready Fight. So one of the settings is clearly like super spies and stuff like that because nice. of the car chases and the cool cars. But uh, so I've been thinking about stuff like this anyway. Mm. It's like, oh, here's here's a bunch of questions people want in the next book. Cool. Very good. That'll be cool. <laughs> Speaking of a bunch of other questions people want, this, <laughs> this brings us into uh, chapter two of part two, Adversary Creation, um, where the chapter starts off with a, a true, uh, you know, as you said, there's a little bit in the core rule book, but here we have a true recipe, a truly expanded recipe for creating adversaries. Um, and we had two questions I'm going to read together because they're the same question. First was from a, a Tobor Max from Reddit who said, um, I'm hoping I'm not asking something silly here, but I'd love clarification on the high cunning on what looked like intellect-based archetype arrays in the adversary creation table. And this was then echoed by Joel C. via email. He said, uh, first off, I love the show. Uh, love the rules for creating adversaries. However, I have a question about page 75 in the Expanded Player's Guide. There's a table describing various pre-made stat arrays. The smart person and the savant profiles have average intellect and above average cunning. However, the examples that are given are all professions like researcher or medic that would rely heavily uh, on intellect-based skills. Um, furthermore, the cunning foe profile has average cunning and above average intellect. This seems like a mistake. Was this a mistake? That may have, in fact, been a mistake. And I'm oh. just going to double check. Yeah, unfortunately, I think that was uh, that was a mistake. <laughs> it just looks like they got flipped somehow. Mm-hmm. Maybe as you were alphabetizing the list, something the name moved and the stats didn't or something. Yeah, that looks like it. The uh, the cunning foe, I think, is actually yeah. This the smart person, and savant are the uh, are the two that definitely. Well, no, sorry, the savant and the cunning foe are the two right. that I think. Uh, yeah. Shoot, now I'm now I have to think about this. <laughs> Although I would say Sam Savant only is an agility one, and if you're looking at spies, assassins, and military scouts, I want them to have agility four. Yeah, it's a good point. So, so it might just be foe, like the intellect and the cunning. Uh, yeah, I think it's the intellect flipped. and the cunning got flipped on the savant and the cunning flow and the uh, smart person. Yeah. Oh shoot, sorry about that, guys. I'd uh, say we'd uh, fix that in the next errata, but. <laughs> For that. Ouch. Ooh. <laughs> Too right. soon. Yeah. Ready. But mm. yes, I think uh, in my entirely unofficial capacity, I would say that you could give the smart person intellect um, three cunning to the savant intellect five cunning to um, and the cunning foe intellect two cunning four. Yeah. You have my you have my blessing on that Very for good. what it is worth. Which is and to be low. fair, it's really not going to mess with the power levels in any measurable way because intellect and cunning are both in. No, for the, yeah, yep, yeah, they're both uh, general. General, they both count for the general category. Yeah, right? so it won't actually affect. Uh, it won't affect power levels at all. Although, uh, yeah, that's. Uh, I think we get into we get into power levels uh, a little later. So fair. Well, actually, we can move straight into that. Hooli, I think, because that's kind of the big wow from this particular chapter. <laughs> the adversary power levels, absolutely. So uh, Lance Hancock uh, via Facebook says, first off, I would like to say I love this new book. I also had a question about power levels. I have been trying to figure out how you came up with various power level numbers and have been trying to reverse engineer a solution for existing homebrewed creations. I was wondering if there is any advice you could give or guide that would allow me to convert adversaries that don't quite fit 
um, the characteristics or skill array given in this book. Thanks again for the book. Sure. So, I mean, step one, just find the closest. If it's off by one, I don't think it's going to break your power rating or whatever. Mm. But otherwise, uh, I could tell you that brawn and agility is characteristics. Go to the combat one. Mm. And intellect and cunning, go to the general one. And willpower and presence, go to the social one. Mm. So uh, I'm pretty sure that's basically how it worked out. There, there might be a little more squishiness than that. But uh, uh, So if you could just find from each one where it's the same brawn and agility mm-hmm. or the, you know, the, same, the same pairs, you could just steal what it's doing to either combat, social, or general, and you can do it that way. Mm. Yeah. Um, the, uh, the thing is that with uh, power ratings, there's, um, there's two systems, basically. There's the system we've provided, which is something that somebody can actually use... <laughs> relatively easily Mm. and then there's the there's the behind the scenes mechanical system which um keith created and um i messed around with um and expanded on which is more accurate much more accurate but unfortunately in the end we found it just wasn't something that uh, people could really use um use on the fly Mm. or honestly use in general it's there's a lot of math that goes into it, mm. and it worked better behind the scenes, basically. <laughs> um, yeah. Side note, by the way, I went through, um, looking through all of the... Uh, I, God, I, I'm so embarrassed about this, but uh, that previous question about intellect and cunning, mm-hmm. they just all got switched. Like every mm-hmm. single one in the chart? Yeah, because um, all of the creatures have a cunning of one, but an intellect of three or two, and that should be the other way around. Oh man! It's yeah, one hundred percent. Yep, it is just intellect and cunning. Somehow, all got switched. That, I feel really bizarre. bad about that. I'm super sorry. That's okay. I'm sure. <laughs> well, <laughs> at least it's consistent, though. Yeah, at least it's consistent. I hope it. I mean, I guess it'll have to be, but I still feel really bad about it. Mm-hmm. Everything else looks correct. It's just that. Yeah. Yep. Now and now I can't unsee it. <laughs> <laughs> so back to the question at hand. You mm-hmm. you. You you talk about you know the the math behind it that's not fit for public consumption, but of course these are gamers and all they care about is the math. In fact, <laughs> if you could give them complicated formulas, they would want more complicated formulas. formulas. <laughs> well, it was created. I could tell you that. Um, and 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 to that end, I don't know if you guys even want to go into this or 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 just or bow out of it. But uh, on Twitter, actually, Phil Dudley said, "How does the math for the power rating?" <laughs> <laughs> what is used to determine those, especially for the existing characters that were custom created? To be um, to be perfectly honest, it's not something that can be easily explained. Keith touched on the basics of it, which is different char- skills and different characteristics go into the different categories determining it. They all have values. They're derived from XP. Um, you tally them up. You compare them to a chart. But beyond that, it's not really worth explaining because... Unless you have like the fifteen-page document or whatever, right. you're not going to be able to. I wouldn't make. even know how to begin to like explain it, and also I don't even know if I'm contractually allowed to explain it. <laughs> and that's another thing, actually. Now <laughs> that uh, now that I'm uh, no longer an official company representative, I don't think I can disclose that. Mm. Yeah, you know, if, imagine if you could though, you could take that fifteen-page <laughs> document 
put it up on the foundry and you guys could hit like platinum in about <laughs> I couldn't. But I, I literally couldn't. Like that yeah. I definitely can't do because I got paid for that. <laughs> imagine. Imagine. I mean everyone else out there couldn't imagine. Uh yeah. Or, or you know, they could plan an elaborate heist to break into my machine at, at my house because <laughs> the document exists; it's there. Although it got it, it got tweaked afterwards. I'm too. sure. So you wouldn't so. even have the best one. You'd have to yeah. really break into FFG headquarters. <laughs> the other, the other thing, though, and this I can say is that it's not just a matter of math. There is a lot of room in adversary power creation for adjusting things based on abilities that defy easy characterization or abilities that combo with other abilities that m multiply them and make them more powerful or just off the wall situations. Mm. Um, you know, like for one thing, like if you have a really high soak on something, soak becomes more powerful, the higher it gets, but it's not a, uh, it's not a geometric prog progression. It's, it's a exponential progression in a way, but it's actually even worse than that because if your soak goes above a certain point, most weapons don't actually have the damage to hit above that soak, at which point... So the damage like, changes, yeah. Yeah, the, the damage... damage right, so you can have things that become nigh-invincible, so their soak should be even more value valuable when determining their combat rating than something soak, you know, something with less soak. And high soak plus like any defense, and you really start getting into trouble. Mm -hmm. High soak plus um, adversary ranks. Um, yeah, yeah. All, yeah. All this stuff gets actually, real messy. You actually have a sidebar on that specifically on page seventy-six because um, we knew it was messy. Yeah, mm -hmm. <laughs> literally, literally, the sidebar is called "Avoid Compounded Defense." Is it yeah. exactly <laughs> what you just said? Hmm. It's almost like I wrote that. Or something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sounds like me. Look, the the other thing to take into consideration as well, like we do for everything that that we suggest with new talents or or new adversaries or, or whatever we've we've done at the time, it has to be play tested. And sometimes you're going to get a play test group that is fantastic, and they they pull it apart and they go, no, this needs to be adjusted upwards. Um, so yeah, just play test what you've done, come up with with whatever formula you think is appropriate. And then start to run it and see if it actually works or not. And that's where I think your 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 tweaking here and there probably comes in the most. And and another X factor that we can never ever account for on any chart is how the GM's going to use them mm. uh, strategically mm -hmm. and tactically. Because some GMs are mean and they're gonna you know try their damnedest to kill their players. Mm. And and other GMs are kind of nice and they're gonna fudge it so that the difficulty ends up feeling about right right mm. so that the players like barely get through this or easily get through this depending on the needs of the adventure which is what a good gm would do by mm. the way mm. but uh uh yeah. but i there's Please no accounting that. For that. <laughs> there's no there's no accounting for that in in a sort of a challenge rating chart uh is no plan survives contact with the gm even though the gms <laughs> say no plan survives contact with the players like, we're we're a level on the other side of that True. Yes. Very, very true. Yeah. To be fair, when I created it, I didn't have any secret knowledge, really. I had experience in the system, but a lot of people have that at this point. So honestly, it it, it wouldn't surprise me if somebody just magically recreated almost exactly what I handed in to Sam, mm. like whenever it was a year ago. Yeah. Uh, because it's oh. like it's all there to sort of pick up and figure out. Mm. 
no, it wouldn't surprise me either. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so David Morris, who is one of our Patreon Discord um, members, so um, thanks for your question, David. Mm-hmm. Asked a very, very similar um, question, but part of that we really can't answer. Um, so um, Jared Crawford on Facebook, he asks, I would like some guidance on how crit ratings could or should impact power levels when designing adversaries, as all of the guidelines just rate base damage ratings were also something that factored into um, the behind the scenes power level <laughs> math but uh, basically really low crit levels ones and twos could potentially increase it but it also depends on the damage and the skill something that has a crit rating of two alone is not going to increase your power level by one or your combat level by one yeah. but um, a high damage weapon with a crit rating of two or somebody with a high combat skill that also has a crit rating two weapon might or uh, something with like crit rating two plus if it's got like also vicious 10 or something like that then yeah that's going to be a problem but th- if you think about it how many crits would an npc have to do to a pc before it's probably dead like mm. five <laughs> six i mean unless they have a lot of vicious yeah uh you're likely to like uh, uh, knock a player out either by straining them out or, or uh, getting rid of their health mm. than you are to like crit them out of the game. So yeah, I don't. I'm, it does have an impact, but I don't know that it's super significant. If you yeah. notice that it's like, oh, it's crit one, vicious five, like okay, maybe bump up the combat level by one. But yeah, generally base damage is going to matter more because it always matters. Mm. Right. Okay, well then, what about magic? Because this is the next question we had coming in from Reddit, um, actually from Seabeck, Christopher Ruthenbeck, um, saying, you know, how the hell do magic skills factor into the power level calculations? Do they? That one still stumps me, he says. Just treat it as a weapon. Unless yeah. it's like having a utility effect, but uh, uh, in, which, in which case I would, I, I don't know, probably not a lot. Yeah, um, I think a lot of magic we treated as um, it affected their combat level and their general level. Um I mean, you could argue that it could also affect their social level depending on the spell and the magic. But again, yeah, the best thing is to balance it with their um, with their general utility and but primarily their combat utility, because that's really where you're going to care the most anyway. Right. Makes sense. All right, so Kate Saunders, she says, I've been spending all day looking through the Expanded Player's Guide. Hooray for the PDF. And one question that I can't seem to find answers to is when the guide gives power levels to a minion group, how many minions should be in the minion group? I have the feeling I'm overlooking something. You are. It's a sidebar, page 84. (laughs) Uh, It's minion power levels. Uh, Turns out there's three minions in a group for the purposes of uh, power levels. Right. Mm -hmm. There you go. Very See, good. I love those easy answer questions. Very nice. <laughs> well, there's there's a very definitive, clear answer. Yeah. Not and, all of them are like that, but that one is. <laughs> and our last question around um, adversary creation, another one from Christopher Ruthenbeck. This one asked on the FFG forums. He said, How would you adjust the power level table if the PCs had some NPC allies? You know, a sergeant with a squad following them, PCs who are the the officers of a starship who have gunner crews and or fighter pilots, things like that. Thanks. I would figure out their challenge rating and then just subtract it. Um, I think you could count a minion group as pretty much a PC or 
a decent rival as a PC and use that um, and adjust the table in general too. Just because um, as long as as long as they're at least mildly competent at what they do, like if you have a uh, if you have a minion group that doesn't actually have any combat skills or weapons, then don't add them to combat encounters. But if they're going to actually do something useful, then they could probably count as a PC because they will um, provide combat attacks. They will contribute damage and they will soak up hits in knowing player characters. They will undoubtedly soak up hits that were meant for player characters, <laughs> especially if the players are losing, right? Good GMs, you know? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, we you, shoot at the NPCs this turn. Yeah. yeah I would demonstrate uh, how dangerous that is by killing your friends. <laughs> I think you can, if you, if you want to get more into it, you can least calculate up. Yeah. You, you can do what uh, Keith said, calculate up their um, challenge rating for the, um, NPC, see if something comparatively works, and then determine uh, determine like how tough a PC they are. That'll especially let you sort of figure out if they should if they should really contribute based on the group XP total and all that. Very good, good. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Now, generally, I think that the system presented here in this section has been very well received, and it's something that that I think that the game was missing. Now. I say that for the masses, but but unfortunately, I, I don't say it for myself, and, and I'll explain why. Um, I think that this system, when it comes to GMing, is very much a case of running by feel. You know, your your gut instinct. You know, uh, when it comes to to designing NPCs and things like that. And you know, I may have said this even during uh, the the testing for uh, power level creation that it, it honestly just seems foreign to me. Um, uh, it's something that, that I obviously moved away from when I was playing with D&D and Pathfinder. Um, now, don't get me wrong, though. Um, what you guys uh, have put together here is beyond excellent. And even though there's obviously some stuff that, um, you know, is, is going to remain behind closed doors... Um, what's been presented here will appease many who've been who've been looking for this uh, this type of system for the game. But I'll be honest and ask, what do you say to those players and GMs who are more veterans of the narrative dice system um, and who are so used to developing NPCs by feel uh, rather than a strict rule set? Well, it's a real uh, foundry friendly thing to have exist. Right? Yeah, yes. absolutely. Like. If you could do the math and calculate, hey, it's this challenge level, like that makes you feel like I made a balanced thing that people know when and how to use. Mm. Well, we were we were getting the foundry set up while we were working on this book, so mm. there were some of those. Uh, there was some of the thinking about it sometimes. <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely. And then we move on to part three, which is probably my favorite section out of all of it. Um, and uh, it's probably, um, you know, I, I think that it's probably even more talked about uh, than any other section in the book. You know, four new chapters dealing uh, with, uh, you know, the, the popular magic rules and expanding upon that, social encounters as well. Um, you know, but uh, it's also the introduction of a pair of new tones for the game uh, and the introduction of specialization trees which was something which a lot of people who were so used to star wars uh that um were sort of a little bit confused i guess when genesis first came out that suddenly there weren't these trees that they had to deal with now so with this section you've you've brought them in back into the fold again 
Um, what can you tell us about the goals for this section, um, you know, and its design? Oh, well, I mean, so the goals here were, um, well, for one, we knew that there were some additional rules we wanted to tack on. Magic talents and new spells was a big one. We mm-hmm. knew there was some room for expansion there. And we also knew that, like, there are a lot of people out there who prefer Genesis without their specialization trees. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were some people who were like, oh, we missed this. This was great. <laughs> we wanted to do something to to cater for the people for that second group because we hadn't um, catered to them so far. So that was uh, that was the basic basic reason for creating that. Mm-hmm. Um, There's also some other stuff that we had covered in some source books that we wanted to focus down a little bit more. Um, like the social encounter guidelines, um, chapter three, that's some stuff we had discussed in shadow of the beanstalk a little bit, but we wanted to put it in this book. So it was a little more accessible to uh, a larger number of people. Mm -hmm. And that mostly had to do with social encounters. Um, could be, could end up being a little, uh, a little easy if, uh, it's one NPC versus a bunch of player characters, um, just the way they were designed. So we talked about, some ways to adjust that and also ways to make social encounters more interesting. Mm-hmm. And the new tones was uh, sort of a similar thing where we thought about a few tones we wanted to add in. There were um, also some tones that uh, such as noir that were actually uh, tones from the core book that we had to cut. So we rolled it back in and yeah, so that was basically the, the goal for the section was to address some of the places that the, uh, we felt the core rule book um, wasn't able to finish. Mm-hmm. And that's that's very, very clear as you go through this because it, it kind of adds, and we talked about this at the very beginning of the episode, right? Mm-hmm. It, it sort of adds that feel to it. Now, that starts off with chapter one, which is expanded magic rules, um, which I'll be I'll be frank, when I, when I cracked this book and I went into the table of contents, that was just for my proclivities, the first thing I went through. <laughs> So there's a host of new magic-related talents and three entirely new spells, uh, Mask, Predict, and Transform. And we had a series of questions, um, a little crunchy, around some of these talent options, actually, which I I love the talents, by the way. The first one actually came uh, from uh, the FFG forums from Finarin Panjoro, who said, I have a question about the use of the Masterful Casting talent, which is one of the Tier 4 talents in the EPG. Um, does it allow the activation of critical hits? It seems it could be argued that it does, as that may be activated using a triumph. But if so, does it confer the times three advantage, making it at a crit, you know, a crit at plus 20? Um, that seems like it could make a deadly spell with Vicious 3 particularly deadly. I mean, at that point, a single triumph might activate a crit at plus 50. <laughs> Hence the that's deadly a, spell, right? Yeah, that's an interesting thing but i think the answer lies in weapon um weapon and gear descriptions and i'm just double checking that real quick yes that's what i thought so um the big thing the big thing is is that a uh, critical rating and a critical is not an is not a quality mm-hmm. that's um it, yeah. it is not a quality and it's not a spell effect well there's a spell effect that gives it a lower critical rating, but the critical rating itself needs to be um, triggered with advantage and triumph as normal. Yeah. Um, so basically, no, you can't. 
<laughs> for, as you pointed out, that reason and also <laughs> all of the complicated, messy nonsense it gets to. <laughs> Duly noted. Now, uh, Chellis uh, on Patreon Discord, he asks, uh, the EPG holds wondrous talents for casters. I'm slightly concerned with the combo of brilliant casting and strength of faith, having too much synergy and may potentially provide too many free advantages. While this mo- will most likely uh, only be an issue at high XP play, I was wondering if it would upset talent balance too much if one was to limit strength of faith to use a story point and drop the action economy to an incidental instead. This way, both talents could not be used at the same time. I mean, you certainly could. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think that changing the action economy, it makes it a little spendier for a story point than a maneuver, but probably not in enough to bump it up into tier five level. I don't think that those two are necessarily unbalanced in and of themselves. Um, But if that's something that really concerns you, yeah, you can totally do that. Keep in mind though, that strength of faith is once per session for a tier four talent, like let them have their one turn in the whole session where they get to go ham. Mm. Like, I think it's fine. Yeah. Here's 10 advantage. Yeah. Yeah. It's a tier four talent. It's once a session. Come on. Right. And uh, spells tend to have a lot of stuff that you can spend advantage on. I mean, you know, that's especially when you're talking about affecting multiple people or doing stuff like that. So, yeah, that's that's probably fine. It's also divine spells only for strength of faith. One of the uh, I mean, one of the reasons that got that was, you know, all of the different uh, different talents affected different uh, schools of magic. So strength of faith got its um, sweet like. Um, sweet, once per game, your spell is just going to be awesome. But <laughs> then uh, Arcana gets its own thing and Primal gets its own thing. Because mm. I think that Divine doesn't get a lot of love um, uh, for some of the book anyway, as far as like the, well, not this specific book, but Arcana certainly gets, um, you know, a big chunk of of any of the, the sort of rules, uh, I guess, that have come out. So it's nice to see something which is divine. So, um, so yeah, I don't have a problem with it. And as you say, it's yeah. just that one time that, you know, per session that you're going to be the spotlight. And I think that's right. important to do in games anyway. And it's all based... Yeah, and it's all based on you'll you'll have a high div, you'll have a high willpower if you're a divine caster, but you also need to have a high discipline and ranks in knowledge to really get good uh, good work out of both of them. Uh, mm. both of those talents. Yeah. So, so there's, there's a hidden XP cost. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Next up, we have a question that came in from the FFG forums from LB Woodard, who says the following, and this actually goes back to masterful casting. This is one of my favorite sections in the EPG is the expanded magic rules, especially with all the new magic talents. Masterful casting on page 97 is particularly great. I do wonder, though, whether the qualities or spell effects being activated by the talent need to have been selected before casting the spell or not. I realize it's a tier 4 talent and triumphs are powerful, but even so, I worry about balance if the effects can be added after the fact. Conversely, I also worry about playability or usability if the effects have to be added beforehand. 
therefore thereby greatly increasing the difficulty. I'd be really interested to hear about the design decisions behind this talent, which I love, and I want to make sure I'm using properly. Thanks. So you always have to add the upgrades to your spell before you cast the spell. Hmm. Um, you know, if it's multiple people, you have to add that. If it's the one that gives you, um, if it's ice and gives you ensnare, you have to add that beforehand. Masterful casting is no different. It just lets you trigger qualities or spell effects that you have on the spell. Hmm. Now, and that is the reason why it doesn't require a cost and it, of any kind. It's an incidental activation. Um, and it's just an incidental because you choose what you technically choose whether to use it or not. And um, that was a lot easier. Well, you, you're always going to choose it because you can use a triumph to do just about anything. So you can either choose to use the triumph. Sorry, I'm getting into the weeds. Um, <laughs> but the, the big thing is you don't spend any strain. You don't spend a um, maneuver or an action. You don't spend a story point. You can effectively feel like it's always on. So when you cast your big, when you cast, whenever you cast a spell, you always have an option of using that triumph to trigger three of the qualities you added to it. The only choice you're making is how many qualities are you adding to the spell beforehand? You know, are you giving it this upgrade and this upgrade, or are you just going straight damage and um, nothing else? And if you're doing it, that's fine. But masterful casting will not be a good talent for you because it's not going to give you anything. Yeah. I mean, I think I think of this like if I if I'm throwing out an attack spell, okay, and I want to throw blast on there, and I want to throw fire on there, and and I want to throw impact on there, or or maybe destructive, okay. Yeah. I can throw all those on there, and yeah, it's going to be a hella difficult check, and it's. I mean, I understand my dice pool is going to be pretty stout at the point I've got a tier four talent under my belt, um. So maybe I'll pull off enough advantage to do that. In fact, I, I probably will. Maybe pull off enough advantage to be able to activate it all. But if I happen to roll that triumph, it's one of those things that, guess what? I can now use that triumph to activate all three of them, mm. and I still have all this excess potential advantage left over, which I can then use for other advantage expenditure things that are outside of the realm of activating magical attacks, such as, oh, I don't know, strain recovery. <laughs> <laughs> why, why would you need that? Um, <laughs> that's no that's it exactly think of masterful casting not as the um way to sort of redo spells after you've cast them but a way of it being much more likely for the spell to do everything you wanted it to do when you sort of constructed it before casting mm, it absolutely and if you start throwing in um, some uh implements on top of that <laughs> some scariness yeah that can help a lot <laughs> Indeed. Now, uh, a question that uh, has come from us, it's actually come from my table. Um, so one of my players, uh, Andrew Scott, has asked this question. So it's innate focus, which is a tier three talent. And can it be used with signature spell from Realms of Terranoth? So these spell, these spell talents were designed separate from the talents in Realms of Terranoth because Realms of Terranoth came along uh, first and then we did uh, we did our own version of them. And you get some that you're like, oh, this is sort of like that, um, that one in Realms of Terranoth, but, you know, slightly different. Mm. Uh, yeah, you, you could. Um, I think um, you could use Innate Focus in Realms of Terranoth. Just know that when we designed this, we didn't necessarily expect any of these talents to be used in Realms of Terranoth. Mm. So 
you know, keep an eye out. Make sure it doesn't get doesn't get too wacky. <laughs> so when your player, that one player, finds an exploit, he will. Nope. <laughs> yep. Uh, yeah. You, you like always Sam Stewart. You could find him. I think he just gave you an email to contact him. Man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but like also remember, um, I've given you all permission to say, "Hey, man, that's or hey, person, that's not." Uh, <laughs> That's not cool at all, and you're really going against the spirit of the game I'm running. So don't. <laughs> Look, the, the the answer that I gave to the player uh, was that a it's a magic. Sorry, it's a uh, it's an attack spell only. Uh, so mm. it's only going to be affecting attack spells. Um, that yes, it increases the damage because it's it never talks about effect. It only ever talks about adding damage, which is not an effect. Uh, and then it also talks about, um, uh, you know, decreasing the difficulty, but it doesn't say specifically what effect. So, you know, to in in my opinion, and, you know, I'm not as sort of over the rules as, as what somebody like you, Sam, or, or even Chris, when it comes to magic, is that uh, it, it would be allowed um, to uh, to come into play. I think it, I think they work. Mm. Um, I yeah, I don't. No, I dude, don't, I, I don't see any issue with this. No, yeah, no. I mean, because it, it's an attack spell, and let's let's. I mean, yeah, the reduced difficulty that's fine, but the, but the whole point is the increased damage, and that's the thing. If you're if you are casting without an implement, you are at a serious hindrance in Tiranoth specifically. Mm. So, yes. so well, honestly, you're you're pretty badly off in most. <laughs> in most, yes, yes. So yeah, dude, I don't see any issue with this. Mm. Okay, now that that whole conversation, especially around Tiranoth. Is about to bring us into a very fun can of worms, because we are now moving on to spell questions. Mm, so mm, we have three brand new spells um, in this book: Mass, Print, and Transform. Okay, I'm gonna take a deep breath. On Facebook, <laughs> on Facebook, Darren West and Matthews Skumra asked this. On the FFG forums, Clempad and Darian Okana asked this, <laughs> and in our Patreon Discord, Archelis asked this. They all wanted to know one thing. How do mask predict and transform spell magics fit in Terranoth with rune casters and verse casters? You know, specifically, what can use what? Can can verse and runes be used for any of these three spells? Sounds like a great foundry product for Darren. <sighs> <laughs> the thing the the thing is that um we did know that when we created these, we couldn't ensure backwards compatibility with um, with Realms of Terranoth. Mm. I think that um, Predict doesn't necessarily... Well, shoot. I mean, the other thing is that... Uh, yeah, so I could see Predict working with runes, um, potentially. You know, cast the runes and all that. Yeah. I don't think Transform really fits um, for either of them because rune casting and... Uh, um, and verse aren't primal and transform is just primal. Let's be fair guys. Hmm. I mean, okay. You could argue, you can certainly make an argument that like there are other magics that lets you transform as well, but that's why we have polymorph hmm. and mask. I could see mask working with verse. So I could yeah. see predict working with runes. I could see mask working with verse that that's probably it. Yeah. Hmm. But again, it, I think it works fine. I don't think it'd be a problem. Uh, it's not official. Mm. And I don't know if there will ever be an official ruling on that or not. But I think it'd work. You could totally do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, 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 you hit the nail on the head for me too, man. I, that, yeah. was, that was where my gut was going to. It's like, 
Yeah, illusion magic. Yeah, bardic. Okay. Prediction runes. Transformation. Neither. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all druids all the time. <laughs> All right, so uh, hopefully that question uh, is uh, is answered for you. So um, yeah, uh, now Swordbreaker from FFG forums, he says uh, or asks, predicts flash of precognition effect. Can each of the effects four abilities be triggered per session, or is it a case of either or situation where you can only add either success or failure to a check? So the way it works is. The first two, add a success, add a failure, you get to do both. Mm -hmm. If you spend three advantage, instead of adding a success, adding a failure, you can add two success or add, no, sorry, and add two failure. Mm -hmm. So think of it as half and half. Like either you get the normal effect or if you also get three advantage, the normal effect becomes the upgraded effect. And the effect is one success, one failure, or if you spend three advantage, two success, two success, failure. Like both. Two failure. Yep. Got it. Yeah. Flat. That's right. Flash of precognition and cheat death. Well, how? Hell, predict is probably the most complicated one, period, because <laughs> of because it deals with stuff that hasn't happened yet. Yeah. And uh, It wasn't Star Wars, too, right? Like that force yeah. power. Mm, it's like, yep. oh... Good luck, oh, yeah. GM. I'm planning your campaign that far ahead and having the players actually get there. Good That's right. The other thing the GMs hated. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I just go back yeah. to Yoda, which is always in motion is the future. So oh, yeah. uh, if, uh, you know, if that you know, changes, give, tough luck. You give them that answer occasionally, but uh, there were so many people who were so pissed that that was the thing in uh, Star Wars. <laughs> really? Um, well, specifically GMs writing in because their uh, player was using predict to mess with their game. Right, right. Yeah, like, yeah. Well, that's 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 the GM's fault. No one else. <laughs> no. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's you know it, it goes yeah. down to the whole thing that if you know the future, potentially it can change as a result because of minute decisions that you make based on having the knowledge of what the future was like. Right. I think it's it's also just hard for GMs to. Uh, to like give a hint and a vision to like who the bad guy is to predict the future without players like glomming onto it really quickly and figuring out your whole thing. Mm. I think that's just hard to do, right? Mm. Look, it goes down to something that Chris has said on his podcast uh, on Order 66 is the case that, you know, if you need a timeout, just say, hey, guys, just going to ask for five minutes just to have a little bit of a thing about it. Um, too many GMs, I think, don't want to mess with the flow of their game um, and they end up making errors as a result and it sort of goes in the direction that you don't want. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. All right. We have bucket loads more questions to go. Um, so we'll we'll move through these pretty quickly if we can. So yeah. Kate Saunders, uh, she asks, for the transform spell, how should the GM and players determine the stats and special abilities of the animal that the character is transforming into? That's what uh, the uh, one of the reasons we added animals to the uh, to the section on adversaries. Indeed. Transform into a shark. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And I think that's um, you know open to potentially somebody going and doing a uh, a supplement for the foundry, just on summoned animals, for example. That if they oh, want to go yeah. completely crazy, I mean, that's that's another option I mean, as well. So, There's a lot of animals in the world. You could stat them all up if you want. Mm. 
Now, while we're on the Transform bandwagon, in a related <laughs> question um, on our Patreon Discord, Archella said, I got a question about Transform. So if a burrow gnome from Realms of Terranoth is transformed into a dire bear, will they still get a boost die to attack someone bigger than Silhouette 1? <laughs> sure. <laughs> they bring that skill with them. Why not? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, technically, as per the rules, um, it says what you can do with transform and what you can't do. Yeah. And transform, you get their characteristics, so wound threshold and defense. This is all covered on page 101. Mm -hmm. um, you also gain any of the animals' abilities um, and equipment. Oh, no, so you wouldn't get it because you only retain your own skills, talents, and strength threshold. And the extra boost die is not a skill, talent, or their strength threshold. Mm. So there you go. So the Burrow Gnome does not get to uh, punch above his weight, their weight, when they're fighting, turned it into Makes a dial bearer. Perfect mm. sense. Okay, yeah. well, now, since you've got that answer up, we had a related question from um, Armox on the FFG forums. It said, casting spells while transformed. Yes or no? And if yes, what penalty should be applied to the to the skill check? Honestly, the uh, just the obvious ones. I mean, so they adopt a animal's characteristics for one. So if you're an arcane caster who's using polymorph to transform into an animal, you become about as dumb as a <laughs> actual squirrel that you're transforming into, and casting is going to be real hard. Um, you need to use the characteristic retention ability. Mm. Other penalties, um, if you don't have either hand free because you're a snake, you know, that's worth some setback dice mm. in the uh, Genesis core book, and that carry, that would carry over there. Um, or a shark would have a hard time casting. Um, <laughs> you're, you're probably casting with, you, you can, you're probably doing it with... Uh, worse characteristics unless you made the spell more difficult and you probably have issue you're probably suffering a few setback dice mm. and that might even be further modified by like your setting rules right like dr strange in the mcu if he was able to turn into an otter or whatever like uh, <laughs> uh he needs to be able to do all that weird stuff with his hands doesn't he mm. so yeah <laughs> And it doesn't take much to uh, to say, sure, but the shape of the tongue of the creature that you've just turned into doesn't really kind of, it's not going to be able to pronunciate all of those <laughs> um, spell words correctly. So flip a story point and there's a uh, oh, yeah. upgrade. So, <laughs> you know, yeah, <laughs> goes down to ways and means. Accidentally summon a very pretty hat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Jeremy Thompson from Facebook, continuing our, our last question for Transform. Uh, he was curious, why include the healing mechanic after the Transform spell ends? Um, it's just because your wound threshold's shifting up and down. Um, it was a lot simpler to have you heal, heal all wounds. Um, also, it uh, made Transform a lot worse when wounds carried over. So if you, had, you were a bear with your wound threshold of like 20, and then... Uh, you transformed into a human. It was like, wow, that really sucked. Um, you know, you transform back. So we just decided it made the spell a little better. It made it a lot simpler and neither was a bad thing. Yeah. It also mirrors the, uh, the ability, I think from Terranoth, I could be wrong, or it might be from the core rules where, um, uh, where you do transform as well, that um, it resets uh, that, so it's kind of... Yeah, a lot of the shapeshifter abilities um, do that as well. Mm. Um, it's just... Again, simpler. Yep. 
Now, Ant, tell us when it comes to skills is the last of our questions. And uh, he asks, what is the mechanical benefit of invisibility from the mask spell? Well, if you're looking for a mechanical benefit, um, I suggest uh, my favorite is to go to the critical injury table. Um, mm-hmm. And there is a critical injury that is blinded mm. for mechanics and combat. I think that covers figuring out what invisibility does to your opponents pretty well. Mm. Excellent suggestion. Yeah, there is the invis- invisibility potion, which is uh, also out of Terranoth as well. If you want to go um, sort of uh, less, a little bit mediocre um, version, which is like I think it's uh, for setback die as well. But um, yeah, I always play invisibility in the same way that you suggested, um, Sam. Um, so yeah yeah so basically instead of you upgrade instead of the blinded person upgrade the ability of all checks mm. it would just be upgrade upgrade like the difficulty of um all checks targeting the um the the invisible person yeah twice makes sense mm. all right guys we're in the home stretch we've been going at this for darn near three hours now yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> you guys have been absolute champs this this moves us into what Wow, f- something that was really fan exploded um, over this uh, in this particular part, which is Chapter 2 Specialization Trees, hmm. using them and creating them. And to start with, we, we had a, a couple of, of related questions um, from both Eric Strimple and Gerald Goodridge on Facebook, um, basically saying, you know, so excited to see this brought over. Can you Can you discuss the pros and cons of the talent tier system versus the spec tree system that we see here um, and any guidance you may have for, you know, creating spec trees, especially those struggling with like pathway creation. Sure. I mean, so basic pros and cons, we talk about that a bit in our, in the section as well. And it's that you are giving up customization in exchange for um, pre-definition of careers or um, in this case, specializations. Depends also on whether you link your specializations to careers or not. But we recommend that you do if you're going to go um, this route. So if you use specialization trees, your careers are going to feel much more impactful. They're going to be feel much more um, defined as to what some some characters are going to be much better at doing some things. Other characters are going to be much better at doing other things. There'll be a lot more predetermined character role because it'll be harder for characters to get at certain talents that would make them good at something like, you know, a talkie character who's also good at combat. Hmm. So, I mean, that is neither good nor bad. That is just a different way of playing. If Hmm. you like that, sweet. If you prefer to let people build their own characters from the ground up, then, and do whatever they want, then talent tiers are the way for you. Also, specialization trees take up a lot of real estate. Um, less of a big deal in something like the Foundry because it's all PDF. Mm-hmm. Uh, much more of a big deal when it's something like printed book where you actually have to account for every page. Mm-hmm. I think um, the other cool thing yeah. about a spec tree is that you can start messing with talents that are kind of like five plus, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They're, they're a little more powerful maybe than tier five because you can kind of bury them. Uh, and sort of add XP costs to them. But if you have like, if you're making up some talents that are like, hmm, I don't know, this seems really, really powerful, you could at least sort of balance them out. Yeah. Mm. As far as like best practices for like pathways and stuff, honestly, it's it's kind of an art more than a science. Um, 
and you kind of have to practice with it. I mean, and this is from somebody who's made uh, 30 to 40 of them, uh, like, yeah, 40 <laughs> of them or more in Star Wars, maybe 50. Mm. You um, using the tiers to determine like um, the tier system to sort of first figure out where some stuff's going to go works. But um, in general, whatever you do, try not to create one path through the tree that is the best path mm. that is you look at it and you say, well, if I was a player, I would obviously go this route. Um, show it to a buddy if they're like, if you, they choose the same route, it needs to be tweaked. Try and just come up with some different, uh, some different pathways. Don't always build the same structure. And um, especially until you've done it a few times um, and you sort of get a feel for what's a, what your players will accept and what they won't, uh, don't create one route through the tree. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but as someone who's made like 50 of these, do you find there are, were there like many, many different structures to construct them or was it kind of like, well, there's like six real different ways to, to build the, the pathfinding through it. And you know, you can mess with it a little, but not much. There's a, uh, there's more than six, but there sort of becomes these, you're right. These general sort of approaches. There's the tree where most things are create are connected um, there's the tree where there's sort of a central column and things branch off from it. There's the, the double, um, tree as we like to think of it, where there are sort of two separate trees that are only linked by a few things mm. so that it forces you early on to decide one of two routes that you want to go into. There's the like top half, bottom half where everything on the top half or the, or I should say the low XP cost section is, uh, pretty well linked together and that and it has one focus like maybe that's all the combat stuff and then the bottom half is all the high level talents which happen to be all the like piloting stuff and you've just made like the combat fighter pilot commando mm. um where they are learn how to be a commando first and a pilot second or maybe a pilot first and a commando second you know mm. whatever and it's sort of think about it as how a player is going to progress through it and, you know, what what should they be learning first in this specialization, second in this specialization, third in the specialization? Mm. Um, and if anybody wants to listen to how some of those sort of trees get created, it's certainly a breakdown of it. Um, go over to Water 66. They break down um, in, well, isn't that special? Quite often they will go through each of these specializations and just listen to how they're created. And uh, one thing that I know that we will definitely do at some point, um, and Sam, you might be interested in coming back on the show, uh, we will just do a specific uh, furnace section dealing with the creation of specialization trees because it is something that, that a lot of people ask a lot of questions on. Uh, so uh, that may be an option for us at a later stage. Yeah, I'd be happy to come back on at a later point and do a little more uh, prep work on it and uh, we can really dive into it. Mm, very, very good. In that regard, uh, one further question that we had from LB Woodard was concerning the inclusion of talent trees. Would it be balanced to have a campaign with some players using trees and others using the pyramids? Could a player with a pyramid purchase a tree? This sounds complicated. <laughs> if you want to make your campaign complicated, sure. Um, is there another way to work this new option into an existing campaign or would players need to rebuild, respec if they wanted to take a tree for a pre-existing character? Thanks so much for all the amazing advice, and thanks to Sam and the rest of the wonderful products. 
sorry, for all the wonderful products to play with. Well, you're welcome, sir. Or you're welcome, person of uh, <laughs> indeterminate identity. Um, you're welcome, you, you person. <laughs> no, but yeah, it's very nice of you to say. We specifically suggest that you do not mix the two systems. Mm. You do one or the other for exactly what uh, Huli just pointed out. It gets real complicated. Mm-hmm. It, it gets real complicated, and there's no good way to not make it complicated. <laughs> um, I mean, it's your game. You can do whatever you want, but it will get messy, um, and it becomes really easy to try and exploit things because you start having situations where people say, well, I'm going to do this pyramid to get this talent that's not available in any of my trees. Um, but then I'm going to go back to the tree to get this talent, which happens to be cheaper than if I did it on the pyramid. And yeah, it just becomes kind of a, a messy min max. Like, yeah, it basically, it kind of just encourages min maxing even for people who may not go down the min max route. Yeah. So Pick one system, go with it. Don't switch your game in midstream unless all of your players are like specialization trees are the best thing since uh, <laughs> peanut butter and chocolate were mixed and we won't play another game without them. <laughs> and even then, like all your players should be using the same rules probably. Yeah. Yes. Otherwise, oh, yeah. they're, they're just going to resent each other yeah. quickly. Mm-hmm. Yep. Right. No, that's a good point too. Either all of your players use specialization trees or they all use uh, the talent pyramid. And honestly, if you're going to spend all that time to build specialization trees, and trust me, it's all that time. (laughs) I know. (laughs) (laughs) After doing Force and Destiny and Edge of the Empire's uh, talent trees, it's all that time. Mm -hmm. But after you do all that time, you're going to want everyone to use it because uh, how would you not want your work to be appreciated? Yeah. I'm just thinking about that now. Like, I'm not building it until I know that player is using this. Uh, I'm not building it. Is it GM? What, you're going to build like 30 so they can have a choice? No. 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 Nope. Nope. And to be like, what do you want to do? I would almost let the player build their own tree and then I'd just be like, show it to me so I could approve it. So you didn't just put every single talent you ever want ever in the tree. But yeah. So I can completely redo it. (laughs) (laughs) Before I spend one minute of time developing specialization trees, it's like, okay, are we going to use them or not? Oh, we are. Okay. Then I'll go do the work. But if we're, yeah, good Lord. Yeah. Oh, actually have players create specialization trees for other players. And then Mm, there you go. Set the party against itself. Now you're talking. Uh, (laughs) See, that's, that's like asking the kids to, uh, to cut the pie. Uh, but the other kid is the one who gets to choose which piece. Very yeah, great. Uh, I like that a lot. That's very good. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we'll talk more about uh, specialization trees and um, uh, and how that all works and sort of the playtesting you can do to muck around with that uh, in a future episode for sure. Uh, but chapter three, social encounters. Chris. Oh, yeah. We had lots of it. And, and this really brings us to the end of our conversation, guys. We just had a couple questions left for you. Yeah. Um, Lots of new expanded rules and suggestions here on social encounters dealing with with varied social encounter situations. Really intriguing chapter. Mm. Um, introduction of a new rule, the group leaders. Mm. Uh, uh, very, very cool. And I, we, we've kind of talked already about the genesis of it. Um, so I don't think we need to get into that. But we did have two specific listener questions. Um, the first came in from Facebook from Toby Wheatley. It says, when performing social combat, would you reset strain threshold if transitioning into physical combat? Or just keep it going, 
uh, seems you'd be starting at a bit of a disadvantage. Um, that's a pretty simple quest um, answer, actually. Um, if you switch into physical um, physical combat, that technically is a new encounter, and so you'd probably want to give everyone a chance to pause, recover a little strain, and keep going. If that really breaks immersion, you can just keep going as well. And then, yeah, people might be starting at a disadvantage, but uh, that might actually make the encounter more interesting. But You could even tie it into your initiative role, right? Yeah, yeah. Technically, yeah, you, you could do something like that. Your initiative... Um, you know, you could also determine if you recover some strain or not um, based on how well you did. I mean, but in the end, um, in the end, yeah, rules is written. You would get a chance to recover some strain. If you don't want to give them that chance, that does put them at a disadvantage, but that might be interesting. Mm. I always find it interesting when my players are at a disadvantage. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're one of those GMs, right? <laughs> <laughs> Depends on the day of the week. <laughs> it's not sadistic. He's just trying to create more opportunities for story. Exactly. Yeah. That's that's yes. Let's go with that. They don't. <laughs> they don't get to escape from a dungeon unless they get captured and put in a dungeon. Ah, right. That's true. That is true. Um, and our last question comes from Jeremy Thompson, and he says, "What was the thinking with not having any magic abilities affecting social encounters?" Would you have any suggestions on how you would include magic in social encounters, namely with monsters that can peer into your mind? So I'm a bit of a traditionalist. And for me, magics and psionics have always been sort of two different things. Mm. And mind reading firmly comes into the realm of psionics as opposed to um, magic. Yep. So that's just my personal opinion. Mm. Now, I think that um, if you have something with a psionic power or mind reading or telepathy and we have a telepath alien in uh, the Genesis core book that has that sort of thing, mm -hmm. then that should affect social encounters. And um, when we statted out the telepath aliens uh, combat rating, they and challenge ratings, they actually have a high social because they can read people's uh, stuff. Um, in Shadow of the Beanstalk, the telepathic clone has the same sort of thing. I mean, at that point, it's just another ability. So magic and social encounters, it's going to, like, if you want to include it and you have some sort of mind-reading magic, I mean, it shouldn't be super easy, but it will do the kind of thing that you normally do in social encounters. You learn people's motivations, you learn their goals, you improve your own characteristics. So like augment magic actually does work in a social encounter because you can increase your ability to talk pretty or <laughs> be scary. Mm. All these different ways. I mean, you know, sky's kind of the limit. Mm. Very, very good. Mm. Good, good, good suggestion. Curse can also be used heavily. Yeah, yeah yes, it can. Cool. Also, uh, turning into the bear, uh, into a bear in the <laughs> middle of a fancy dress ball, <laughs> definitely... It's a very effective. Can I help that coercion check out? For sure. <laughs> yes, totally, totally, totally. And of course, Jeremy, if you really want to see some magic-like powers or psionics that are going to potentially could be used much more straight in a straightforward capacity in social mm. combat as well as regular combat, you can of course uh, you know wait to the end of the quarter when uh, we publish uh, on the on the on on the Foundry our psionics handbook. Mm. Um, True. Which, which completed playtesting last quarter and uh, may have a few uh, options for you there. Just saying. Just, there you go. Just saying. 
Well, gentlemen, this leads us into chapter four, which we've really already talked about to a large degree. We didn't really have any questions on it, where we introduced the new tones of heist and noir. You know, with noir, Sam, you said specifically something that was originally slated for the core rulebook, but had to get pulled and then pushed back into this. But we had the introduction of the heat mechanic, which is essential for a heist. God, um, yes. God, you know. yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, then, and then, of course, the internal monologue. Um, all of this uh, and both theme tones go great in uh, Shadow of the Beanstalk and Android yes. sets as well. But, dude, yeah, what a fun chapter. Oh, thank you. Yeah, um, Marker, um, let's see, I believe uh, Sterling wrote Noir originally, and then Marker wrote uh, Heist newly for this one. Right. So. Yes, Heist is my, I'm sorry, uh, the Heat is my new favorite mechanic in this book, as far as I'm concerned. It's great. I love it. Yeah, Jason, Jason did a good job with that. Mm. Well, that's all the questions, and there were a lot of them. <laughs> so if you've listened this far in all one sitting, you deserve a medal. So, uh, so, so there was a lot, but um, yeah, guys, uh, thank you so much for uh, for going through all of those questions with us. And uh, you know, if uh, uh, if you if anybody does have any other questions, uh, Sam provided his uh, his uh, details at the, uh, at the top of the show uh, that uh, you might want to send him one. Obviously, again, it won't be necessarily official, but someone with his experience, it pretty much will be. So. <laughs> <laughs> You can also always uh, find me on uh, Twitter at uh, Sam B. Stewart. Sam, sorry, underscore B underscore Stewart. And yeah, I'm, um, I sometimes frequent the Genesis um, and D20 radio uh, groups as well. Keith, do you have a Twitter handle? Uh, yeah, at KR Kappel, spelled the same way as my last name. And I'm on the Discord a little, although it's hard to find me there unless you direct message me. Right. And like the Facebook, Facebook is usually the best way to find me, Keith.Cappell. Well, gentlemen, <clears throat> I can't thank you both enough for, for taking so much of your time to come on and talk about this amazing product with us tonight. Mm-hmm. For me, I, I, I organize my books and my shelf in a certain way. Okay, uh, and, and it's a very Byzantine and complex structure. And core rule books have their own special place. Supplementary books have their own special place. After my first read-through, I had to scratch my chin. After my second read through, this little tome slid itself right alongside the core rule book in the place where it belongs as really a additional 120 pages that really are a part of that key core rule book component. Mm. The work you've done has been masterful, and uh, this truly is an amazing product. Uh, thank you for taking all this time and going through it with us and being with us all tonight. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Might as well. Thanks for having me. Wow. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> um, oh, so I don't. I don't think this has been a great show. I don't think I've had one this grueling since last time Order sixty did Order sixty six did a a Star Wars core rule release. <laughs> I know. Um, oh God, it's like, it's like we had Whitwer on the show or something like four and a half hours. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, um, but you know this this epic epic show I'm sure had to come to an end eventually and and now Huli is the time. Mm, sadly, yes, and uh, it, it as you say it, it truly has been an amazing show. So um, you know thanks in every way to our amazing special guests Sam and Keith. You know what an incredible incredible uh, couple of guys. They've done amazing things as part of the community. They've done amazing things uh, with the products that uh, that we've seen come out of FFG. Uh, you know, the, it was just amazing. I know that I've said that three times now, uh, but uh, it's amazing that they could, uh, you know, join us tonight as well. 
Absolutely. Now, next episode, listeners, we will be returning to our normal format with a continuation of our ongoing series on magic. Mm. We'll be continuing our discussion on how to reskin the magic system into something entirely new. And with that, we'll be uh, plowing forward with our uh, building our own post-apocalyptic mutation <laughs> power system uh, with detailed power effects, additional effects, and limitations. Yeah, and, um, you know, it's it's going to be nothing but awesome. Uh, and while you wait for the release of that, uh, please continue to send us uh, any questions uh, that you have about Genesis, being a GM or a player, or just any gaming-related questions you like. Uh, and how can they do that, Chris? Well, they can email us at forgegenesis at d20radio.com or just post it up via one of the many social media platforms, including Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Reddit, simply by searching at Forge Genesis. We've also been having some really good conversations on the D20 Radio Discord channel and, of course, truly dedicated conversations with our patrons on our very own podcast Patreon Discord server. And uh, we would love to hear from you all when it comes to uh, questions, so let us know. Uh, don't forget that you can also join the even larger discussion in the D20 Radio Facebook group where we nerds congregate to cross-pollinate. And don't forget to give us a like or follow us as well on any of our social media sites. You can also drop us a review on those sites or on your favorite podcatcher, including iTunes and even Spotify. You can also visit us on our website at forgegenesis.com. Indeed. I'm exhausted. I don't know about you, Chris. <laughs> like I just went, dude, went eight, like eight rounds with Ali. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. So, well, that's a wrap for us, guys. Uh, thank you for listening, and we hope that you will join us next time as we continue to explore the Genesis role-playing game. I'm GM Hooley, may your triumphs be many and your despairs be few. And I'm GM Chris, wishing you peace, love, and good gaming. Thanks again for joining us. Remember, The Forge Podcast, helping you hone your gaming edge. The Forge, a Genesis podcast, is a proud member of the T20 Radio Network. For more information about the network, visit www.d20radio.com. The Forge is a fan-generated podcast. All the information provided on the podcast, social media, and related website is not affiliated with Fantasy Flight Games or any of their licensors. The content of this podcast remains the property of The Forge, a Genesis RPG podcast, and is intended for educational and informational purposes only. The Genesis role-playing game, Genesis logo, Genesis Foundry, content, and all material remain the property of Fantasy Flight Games. All products available on the Genesis Foundry website remain the property of their respective companies and individuals. For more information about The Forge, a Genesis RPG podcast, visit www.forgegenesis.com. The one thing that I... I sorry, Sam. Oh, no, no, no. Please, please go ahead. So the one thing that... that <laughs> it's all good. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. I was about to say, we're just going to go forever like this. You know, if you don't move us along and then prove my own point. Uh, please, please go ahead. <laughs>